Welcome back to DJ's Epic Quest. I am Jay Rule, aka Justin. And alongside me here is Derek Cronus. My daytime name is Derek. <laughs> How are you doing, ma'am? An interesting stripper name, Derek Cronus. Derek Hockus. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure who my target audience would be if that were would not be my daytime job, would be my nighttime job, I suppose. Right. Right. Exactly. But um, no, I'm doing fine. Been uh, in a couple of buddies that I haven't seen in a while come out uh, from California to visit. So, hey, you oh, met him. Nice. Eric and uh, Michaela. Uh, was Eric the lead singer when you were in the band? Yep. Oh, shit. I know he moved out to California. Yeah, he works at the uh, Apple corporate. So oh, it's probably a pretty good gig. Yeah, it is pretty decent. What about you, man? How you been? Uh, not too bad. Flying solo this week. Kelly's gone all week working in lacrosse. So, um, just me and the cats. So kids are at their other parents. So it's a little lonely at the house, a little boring. Um, but it, uh, did give me a chance to do some reading and typing this stuff up, getting that wrapped up. And I'm sure we both put in quite a few hours into typing up our summaries for this episode. Um, it's only 26 pages long. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm not feeling the greatest today, but um, I'm excited to do this. So, yes, I'm to excited to read the next chapter for sure. But yeah, what do you say? Should we talk about Silverstones here? We should. All right. Well, if you haven't already, please check out SilverstonesBooks.com. They have a very large selection of fantasy, sci-fi, and horror books, with the option of many signed copies at pretty reasonable prices. Um, they have given us a discount code. It's just DJ Quest. So check out their site, pick up a book, and save a little cash while some supporting some indie authors. Yes, and I believe they did get approved for their physical location. Um, so he is pretty excited about that. I think he uh, said, it, from what I saw on Twitter, said it looks like it just needs a little cleaning. Um, doesn't sound like they've got to do a whole lot other than probably get their inventory there. So he's hoping to get the keys. I think I saw by November 1st, which is like a fucking week away from now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I think he, again, just from what I remember seeing on Twitter, I think he was talking about maybe 
if you could get the keys doing like a soft opening but otherwise i think the plan is to open sometime in december which is not far away either no and what the fuck else oh he's still got his gofundme going on um just to try to help you know make sure they've got the first month or however much you know that they can uh banked while they transition uh you know move all this stuff i'm sure it's a lot to do but it's cool to see that uh you know that they found a place they must like it and they're gonna be uh you know going that route too it's pretty cool hell yeah and i'm assuming that we're gonna be there for their grand opening uh i mean i guess we'll see how it works out i mean i think it would be cool we yeah. did kind of put that into the universe <laughs> uh, yeah um, i think if we are only our only option now is to follow through with that yeah we'll have to see how uh timing works out and, and everything else but i mean what you and i each have going on and, and all that too so obviously that's going to be i mean december's kind of holidays time so i guess i wasn't expecting something so fast i, I mean definitely if we can make it down i'd love to for sure yeah we don't necessarily i mean i think the most important part is that we get down there eventually it doesn't necessarily have to be as they open even though that would be cooler but yeah all right well, should we move on to our uh, wonderful and fabulous patrons here? Yes, in order of subscription. Thank you, Jan Picker of Pies, Luciana Etrigan, Ryan the Topological, Damien the Rock of Faces, Nate Fiddle Me This, Shield Anvil Dylan, and David Mallet Mullally uh thank you guys all very much stealing this from another podcast i don't think i said this before but i think it was zach from fantasy for the ages on one of their episodes he said nothing's expected in uh in uh terms of patrons but everything is very much appreciated so thank you very much everybody i like that a lot and thank you all uh for those who had participated in our survey we appreciate the feedback. We got some good insight. So uh, we really appreciate that. So thank you once again. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm pretty sure Damien gave us some feedback. I don't know if anybody else had it or not, at least as of right now. Um, I mean, it's an anonymous survey, so it's hard to say who has and who hasn't. But for those who <laughs> well, <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> Damien, not to throw, throw you on the spot here but he did he did message us saying he was going to do it and then and then we had some feedback so I, I think we can pretty safely assume it was him <laughs> yes yes for sure all right chapter five epigraph here he rises bloodless from the dust with dead eyes that are pits twin reaches to eternal pain he is the lodestone to the gathering calm or clam made anew and dream racked the standard eroded hide the throne, a bone cage, the king, a ghost from dark fields of battle. And now the horn moans, and on this gray-clad dawn, drawing the dis disparate host to war, to war, and the charging frenzy of unbidden memories of ice. Lay of the first sword, Erigthon Delusa. I kind of got a poem vibe from that. I don't know if you did, but that was pretty cool. I feel like the epigraph is talking about Kalor. You think it's Kalor? Yes. Yeah. I get that vibe. I could see that. I would agree. Sweet. I have nothing else to add. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> That's all right. It's uh. I don't know. It's uh. I guess I don't really know what it means, but just the throwing a bone cage, and I just it just made me think of him sitting on the you know when we first met him in the prologue. 
Well, I think that it's alluding to a lot of the drama he stirs up in this chapter. Yeah, well, he does do that. Does draw, you know. Well, should uh, we dive in here? Let's dive in. All right. For first section here, I think this is also the longest section. Um, I mean, it was at least my longest section, but two days later and seven leagues of travel and Lady Envy's Talabra showed no signs of wear or stain. While Tox's face covering was caked with dust. He never thought he would be happy to see a boring-ass grassy plain, but after the volcanic wasteland, it was a paradise to see. Lady Envy asked if the hill would suffice for camp, though she thought it left them exposed and vulnerable to marauders. Tox said while marauders were generally not very smart, they would have to be really fucking dumb to mess with three Segula. Also, the wind would keep any biting insects at bay. He would never recommend a low spot on any prairie. Lady Envy accepted his wisdom on the matter. Tuck quipped that he could not see her four-legged friend anywhere. Lady Envy replied that she didn't see his bony friend either, and perhaps they stumbled into some mischief. Instead of making another joke, Tuck said he should get the tent set up. Lady Envy reminded him yet again that her servants were capable of menial tasks, such as erecting tents. She hoped he would have more important tasks to see to. Tox suggested striking heroic poses against the sunset, to which Lady Envy agreed. Tox became a little irritated, saying he didn't know he was here for her entertainment. She caught on to his irritation and asked for him to relax. She couldn't have these types of conversations with her servants. Tool is no better, and while her dogs listened perfectly and dared not to interrupt her, she craved witty banter. With a sigh, Tox said he was a poor excuse for wit. He was a soldier and little else. Lady Envy said he was being deceptive and not modest. He had been educated far more than what would be common for a professional soldier, and she had heard enough of his witty exchanges with Tool. So why had he grown shy all of a sudden? Lady Envy had placed a hand on Tok's shoulder. He replied that she was a sorceress and sorcery makes him nervous. She took back her hand and said that she understood, but also that she did not. Tool was forged by power not seen in a long time, and his stone sword had been invested to an absurd degree. It cannot be broken, not even chipped, and it will cut through any wards effortlessly. No warren can defend against it. She would not wager on any blade against it. And then there was Tool himself. He was a weapon of sorts, possessing a large amount of strength and power. Yet, Lady Envy had not seen Tok nervous about that. Tox snapped, saying that Tool is only shrunken hide and bones, doesn't brush up against him every chance he got, or throw him smiles that pierce his heart, or mock him for once having a face that didn't make others turn away. Quietly, Lady Envy said she never mocked his scars. Tok looked and saw the three masked Segula and thought that he had really messed up. He wondered if they were laughing at him behind their masks. He tried to apologize to Lady Envy and said he regretted his words. Lady Envy said she accepted his challenge. Tuck didn't understand this. She said that he did not believe that her affections were genuine. She would strive to prove otherwise, and that if he tried to push her away, well, she was not easily pushed away. Tuck asked to what ends, and thought to himself that all his defenses were broken down for her amusement. He saw her eyes flash and knew his thoughts were true. The pain traveled through him, and he began to set up the first tent. The dogs, Gara, I don't, I'm not sure if I spelt that right. <laughs> uh, we'll go with it. The dogs, Gara and Baljag, had arrived. 
making their way back to Lady Envy. A moment later, a cloud of dust kicked up near Tock. There was Tool, and he had an antelope, an antelope carcass slung across his shoulders. From what Tock could see, there were no wounds on the animal, and he surmised that Tool must have scared the damn thing to death. Oh, Gareth for the dog. Thank you. Lady Envy was excited about eating well and told Sinu that he had butchering to do. Tok thought to himself, it wouldn't be the first time either. Lady Envy continued that idle hands were Hood's playthings and that Mock would put together the bathtub and that Thurl would unpack the bath items. Tok looked at Tool and he said he would be making, he would begin to make arrows. Tok said he needed to finish the tents. In the meantime, Tool would make a tool kit. Tok was efficient enough in putting up the tents that he was able to keep an eye on Tool while they both worked on their tasks. He watched Tool break the antlers off. He watched in amazement as the Talan Imus used his bony hands and assortment of rocks and created some chipped flakes in different sizes and thickness. Tool took one flake in his hand and an antler in the other and began using the antler to create smaller flakes. Lady Envy commented on his skill and asked if before metalworking all if all possessed the same skill he had. Tok said it was possible, as some Malzan scholars believed that the discovery of iron only occurred roughly 500 years ago. Lady Envy said she knew he had been educated, and that among the elder races, metal forging was more sophisticated and that improvements on iron were known. Her father's sword, as example. Tok scoffed. Sorcery. Investment. It replaces technological advancement, and it often means supplanting the progress of mundane knowledge. Lady Envy had said that he certainly had a particular view on sorcery and that she detected a rote, which bitter scholar, or better yet, failed sorcerer, taught him his views. Tox said it was a high priest. Lady Envy said he should find another point of view, as his was was skewed and would only keep him narrow-minded. Tox told her she sounded like his father. She only told him he should have taken his advice. Tok had some inner thoughts, thinking she was right. He should have, but never did. His father told him to leave the Empire, find somewhere beyond the courts, beyond the commanders and the claw, and to keep his head low. He finished setting up the tents and went to Tool's side, and Mach had finished the tub while Thurul made his way with the other supplies. The wolf and dog sat near Senu as he carved the antelope meat. He occasionally flung them scraps. Looking at what Tool had accomplished, he said he was starting to see what he was doing, and that while Tool made it look easy to create the arrowheads, he suspected they were not. Tool said some stones are sand, some are water. Edge tools can be made of the stone that is water, while crushing tools are made of the hardest stones made of sand. Tok said he had made it all through his life thinking a stone was a stone. Tool told him that in his language, there were many names for stone. Names that tell of its nature or function, or what had happened to it, or what would happen to it next. Tok understood his point and wanted to change the subject to Lady Envy. Tool said he knew little more of her than he had already told. Tok asked if she was a companion to Rake. Tool said at one time the three who traveled there were three who traveled together Rake, Brood, and the one who ascended to be the Queen of Dreams. Then shit hit the fan. Rake was joined by Lady Envy and the soul taken known as Osric. Those three traveled together for a time while Brood went on his own. He was not seen for centuries, and when he returned a hundred years or so ago, he had his hammer, a weapon from the sleeping goddess. Tok asked what Rake, 
Lady Envy and Osric had been up to. Tool shrugged and said he would have to ask them. All he knows is that there was a falling out. Osric is gone and nobody knows where. Rake and Lady Envy remained companions, but they argued and split before the Ascendants gathered to change the fallen one. Rake was a part of that effort and Lady Envy was not. Tuck said she is a mage. Tool said that could be seen with what was in front of him. Tuck thought he meant the hot water at the tub. What Tool meant was the Segula. Tuck said they were slaves forced to serve her. Tool asked why this bothered him. They were slaves of the Empire. Tuck said, sure, debtors, petty criminals, spoils of war are all made slaves, but not Segula. They're the most feared warriors on the continent, especially the way they attack without warning for reasons only they know. Tool said their communication is almost completely nonverbal. They assert dominance with posture, faint gestures, direction of stance, and tilt of the head. Tok did not understand. If this was their way, why had he not been cut down years ago? Tool told him his unease in their presence sends the message of submission. Tok said he was a natural coward in that case, and that Tool, he shows no unease. Tool only said he yields to no one. Tok was silent, thinking on his words. He said, Mach has a mask, a mask with two scars on it, and he thinks he knows what it means. And if he is right about it, Tool looked to Tuck, his gaze unwavering. He said the young one who challenged him, Sanu, he was good. He didn't anticipate him, and he had not prevented him from fully drawing his sword in their duel. Had he not prevented him from fully drawing his sword in their duel, may have gone on for a long time. Tuck asked how he knew how good he was if he didn't even fully draw his sword. Tool said, even so, he still parried them. Tot could not believe this, that he blocked his attacks with a half-drawn sword. Tool said it was only the first two, but not the third. He only had to study the movements of the eldest to measure the full strength of his skill. Senu and Thurul both acknowledged him as their master. He knew Tok believed, because of the mask, that he is highly ranked among his kind. Tok said he thinks he is ranked third. There's supposed to be one among their kind with a white porcelain mask unmarked. Not seen by anyone but the Segula themselves. They are a warrior society ruled by a champion. He wondered what brought them here. Tool said he might ask the youngest of the three. Tok took that to mean Tool was also curious about it. Tok said he wouldn't do his dirty work. He ranks below them, so the Segula may choose to talk to him. But he could not initiate, so Tool must ask the questions. Tool addressed the Segula and asked why they had left their homeland. The Segula replied, calling Tool Master Stoneblade, and said they were the punitive army of the Segula. Tot caught himself, thinking if anyone else had said that, he would have laughed. Tool was surprised and asked who they wished to punish. He said the invaders of their island. They keep killing them, but they keep showing up. They leave that to the black masks, since the enemy comes unarmed. So they are not worth dueling. However, it is a distraction from their training. So it was decided to travel to where the invaders come from and kill the one who sends them to their island. That was his answer. Tool asked if he knew the name of these people. The priests of the Panion. They come seeking to convert them, but the Segula are not interested. So now they warn of sending an army to their island, which excites the Segula. So in return, they send them many gifts. But the Panian priests were insulted by the gifts. The Segula didn't understand, so now only their blades will speak for the Segula. Tool said, fortunately now, Lady Envy and the rest, they now travel towards the Panion, 
which made the Segula happy. Tool asked Senu how old he was. He replied he was 14 and a 11th level initiate. Nice work, sir. Huh. Definitely a lengthy one. A nice introduction to this lengthy <laughs> chapter, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I definitely, I mean, I had a, a few things here. I know you were you're kind of jotting some stuff down here as we were going. So if, if you want to start off with what you had here. I mean, I totally can. I mean, I'm, I wasn't trying to distract you. I was literally just, like I said, at the beginning of the episode, there's just so much information that, you know, as you were reading it, my thought was just, I would type down what I recall thinking about in that moment. So. Oh, uh, no worries. Well, <laughs> I had, that wasn't distracting me as much as my cat jumping in my lap and biting me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I guess since mine is technically the first one, I can uh, definitely say uh, when at the part where Talk and Lady Envy are having this conversation and I just I really like his comment and it made sense to me about, you know, Tua only being a, a shrunken hide and bones and he doesn't brush up to him every chance he got and throw smiles at Pierce's heart. I mean, it, maybe Lady Envy is is purely just intrigued by the wit that she sees coming from Talk towards Tool, and just wants a little bit more of that herself. Being that she does give a very great explanation, like the Segula have their you know um, hierarchy, so they're not very much for conversation, and while. Her dogs are great at listening. They can't really partake in the actual conversation itself. So putting myself in Lady Envy's shoes, it's kind of lonely and maybe a little bit boring. And having somebody that is neither of that is maybe something yeah. to look forward to. Right. Yeah. I mean, Tool, I mean, talking to him seems very like factual, um, transactional. Like he's just going to he's going to answer your question as efficiently as he can. And that's about it. Right. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. That was just my first thought as we were making our way through the summary. Sure. Uh, my first thought here, you know, talk is wondering about, you know, Lady Envy says that she's not easily pushed away and he's wondering, well, you know, what ends is this going to go? And, you know, he's, he's kind of broken a little bit. And so I wonder what she sees in him, you know, what does, I wonder what she thinks she's going to gain or does she really care for him? Because it seems like talk has pretty low self-esteem and he, he doesn't really want to get played and, you know, start to fall for her a little bit, I think, and then get his heart broken when she's, you know, like, no, oh, just kidding. Right. Well, I mean, even in the first chapter, you know, there's a little bit of flirtation that was happening between the two and on their journey that may have evolved a little bit. Maybe it's not just flirtation and titillation anymore. It's more those stages of getting to know somebody and talk at this point is just like very defensive and kind of having, he's got his own guard pulled up. So Sorry, I guess run that by me again there. I just, I see both perspectives, you know, I just, I don't know what lady envy's motivations are. If there's a deeper, a deeper level there or if she is legitimately interested in the dude yeah i'm not i'm i, I don't know either yet you know I, I keep trying to think of like how do i picture lady envy um and i think kind of what i picture is angelina jolie playing uh maleficent <laughs> i guess i could see that 
I was thinking more Celine from The Great Hunt, for whatever reason. She's just kind of the image that pops in my head, like short, black hair, very thin. But just like kind of the demeanor. I can yeah. see both. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. But I can just only imagine what, you know, what Tak is going through in his mind, you know. I'm sure it would be nice for him to to exchange witty, have witty conversations and exchange some witty banter with another individual. So, you know, that's not undead. <laughs> or right. Don't even talk Somebody to him. probably Yeah. Like more on his level too, I would think. Right. My next point, you know, or talks thinking about Senu and his butchering. Uh, <laughs> I don't think uh, it's animals that he was thinking about. We, we see kind of his sword skills here and, you know, probably butchering people or whatever enemy, I guess, the, the Segula were facing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that there was a, a hidden meaning there that we were meant to pick up on. And I think I, th- I would agree with you there. I don't have anything to, I, I wouldn't say I disagree in any light. Yeah. And then just kind of continuing from there, Lady Envy tells Mock to put the bathtub together and that Thoreau would, you know, get her bath items. And to me, it didn't make a whole lot of sense other than just, you know, this is just clearly busy work because if she can magic herself some hot water, I mean, she really clearly doesn't need them to put a bathtub together or to get her shit. She could do all that herself, probably in a snap of a finger, you know? That's true. Maybe she just doesn't want to waste resources. I guess. Yeah, have them do something instead of sitting around twiddling their thumbs. And I suppose maybe then, if they're busy, they're not going to get into trouble with somebody else. That's true. It could also be a way of, you know, keeping their hands busy, as you said. So, for sure. I thought it was an interesting, an interesting scene. You know, like I could just imagine... You know, Tool and the dogs returning to Talkside on the hilltop. The bath is being readied. And even Lady Envy taking a bath, you know. Like, it's definitely yeah. a chapter that is meant to pass time. Well, I mean, they did some of that. For sure. Uh, I didn't do a very good job of summarizing, but, you know, what Tool's doing, I think he's just making arrowheads, basically. Yeah, um, that part was really cool. Sorry, go he's ahead. making tool. Oh, you're good. He's just he makes a little toolkit so that he can make these arrowheads. And I, I guess you know, I think like, man, that sounds tedious and boring and time consuming. But I suppose if you're basically uh, immortal, time doesn't really mean much. So sure. who cares how long it's going to take you? I would. They actually surprisingly don't take a long time to make. But granted, I've only I've never made one. Obviously, that's not where this is stemming from. But sometimes when I'm just doom scrolling on TikTok, I will come across somebody making arrowheads out of a city, obsidian. And it's really interesting to see how they work. So when Erickson was talking about using a heavy stone that tool found from like the river area that they were passing or like the coastline and then using that to strike the obsidian and just large pieces of chunks that were coming off of it. The way he described everything just matched so beautifully to these videos that I've seen about people making arrowheads from obsidian, even down to the using the antler that the tool broke off to carve little chips into the obsidian to make like a serration. I would totally watch. I would totally watch one and just it, it'll align exactly to how he did. He did it in this chapter. 
I uh, I don't think I would have the patience to make them. <laughs> oh, I for sure wouldn't either. But it's it's fascinating watching them being made. I'm sure that would be cool to see. Um, let's see here. Moving on. Um, the word "rote," R O T E. I didn't know what that meant, so I had to look that up. Um, I don't know if you knew what that meant prior. I did not. I not until I read your little comment here. So it. Uh, it means to learn by repetition. So, uh, you know, talk and his his views on sorcery. I guess basically somebody you know repeatedly told him. I guess basically sorcery's bad or something along those lines. Well, I mean, it sounds like it was a high priest. So, if there's anything you know, going back to Havoric, you know, he was a high priest or once was a high priest of Fenner, or was he a priest or a high priest? I don't even recall now. But I don't think he was a high priest, but maybe he was. I don't remember either. I I feel like the high priest is alluding to some type of like religious fanaticism is kind of what I'm getting at. So I got you. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else I have here. So talk asked if Lady Envy was a companion to Rake and just I think the way it was worded in the book, you know, how talk asked it. I think what he was alluding to was asking if they were lovers um i don't know if you got that vibe or not um i didn't because from what i understand lady envy is draconis's daughter right yes okay but rake is also a part of that family in some way shape or form he is the son of darkness i think companion in this sense means like traveling companion or familial companion but I don't know if lover, I don't know if I would go as far as lover. There was just like when he asked, there was, he kind of had a pause or a little bit of a delay in asking. So that's what made me think that. I mean, it's possible from Tox's point of view. I mean, obviously we don't know much about like house dark and their lineage. So maybe talk is just as ignorant and is maybe just asking. I mean, you could very well be right as to, the intention, but I don't think they're lovers, if that makes sense. You don't think uh, there's incestuous relationships in this world? I mean, I'm sure that there's a possibility, <laughs> but given, given everything that we've come across, but no, I, in this particular instance, I don't think so. Um, I didn't jot down any of this stuff, but I know we've heard Osric before. I, did he come up in Deadhouse Gates? He came up briefly. in Moon. Was it gardens? Okay. Ah, yeah. I wonder what the hell happened to him. I, I, I kind of remember they're like they thought he was somewhere on a continent in the south or something like that. Is what I vaguely remember. But yeah, I thought I wherever we had saw it, heard it. Uh, like well, nobody's heard from him in hundreds of years or something, whatever the time frame was. Yeah, a long time. So I'm curious if we're gonna learn more about him. And also, like I mean, we've. We've heard the term Queen of Dreams multiple times, and I want to know who it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Queen of Dreams is supposed to, like, represent hope or, like, good, you know, or, like, not luck because that's Opon, but you know what I mean? Just, like, good tidings, well-being. Well, so you're thinking the Queen of Dreams is not a person? No, I think it is. I'm just saying oh, that okay. just that house, that that deck of dragon, that hold is a representation of those things is all i was adding on you got okay so i was a little confused there fair enough 
Um, yeah, no, Osric comes up from what I understand as early as Gardens of the Moon. Um, and I believe it happens during a conversation with Baruch and Rake. And I don't know, I just thought it was a nice little callback to Gardens of the Moon. And from what I understand or remember from that story, Rake was talking about how he had met Mapo in a carrium once and Osric was at his side because some type of confrontation between the trowel and Rake or something and Osric had to like pull him back. I very well could be wrong, but like something along those lines, like that situation, but maybe just with characters, those characters, not necessarily that order. Sure. I remember him being mentioned and that's about it. And I I don't think there was a lot there when they talked about it. Yeah. I'm sure just setting something up later on down the road, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. guess we'll find out. Read and find out. Yeah. I mean... This isn't the first time that they got, or that Lady Envy, is this the first time that Lady Envy and Rake and Osric and Brood are brought up? I feel like it was briefly mentioned in in a couple chapters ago. I guess as far as traveling together? Yeah. I guess I don't remember either. Maybe. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, it's interesting that what I can, what I see taking place, and I mean, granted, this really isn't like spoilerish. Again, there's so much information in these in this chapter that I could be out of place here a little bit, but I don't care. So, from what I understand, is that Lady Envy, us, or Brood, and Rake were all, or it was Brood, Rake, and then the Queen of Dreams were traveling together, and then I thought, and then the way I took it is that the Queen of Dreams ascended. And then Osric came in, or Lady Envy came in, and then, um, or maybe Lady Envy didn't come in. Now I'm confused. Oh, well, whatever. But I think it's interesting that uh, Lady Envy and Rake had an argument about, or split before the Ascendants gathered to chain the Fallen One to, I imagine, burn, right? So I have a feeling that this is the reason why brood kind of left the pack if that makes any sense because we do get a little bit of a, a conversation between rake and brood towards the end of the chapter which we can revisit at that time too so but i just think it's interesting that they're sprinkling it and now there's definitely a history there and i just want to know more i'm wondering uh you know it says rake was a part of the effort to chain the fallen one and lady envy was not so maybe I'm wondering if maybe that's where Rake got Dragnipper, and I feel like that would be a pretty valid reason for Lady Envy to not want to be a part of it. Um, you know, if her dad just was, I don't know, I mean, if you say killed or trapped within the sword, however you want to word that, you know, maybe she was, you know, in a tizzy about that and didn't want to be around Rake with her dad's sword now. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems that there was a confrontation of some kind between some of these players i'm guessing over what to do with the the crippled god very well could be you know yeah you know, the, the the stance from that i understand based on the knowledge that i have is that you know quick ben discovers that burn is sick right and you know again that's kind of a repetitious piece of information that kind of gets sprinkled throughout this chapter as well or a little bit here and there throughout this chapter and my guess is that the argument was 
whether or not to use burn to do it, right? Because I can see it as, well, if we chain him, he could potentially take over burn, but that's going to give us however many years. That's going to give humanity however many years to survive. Whereas if we just let him go untethered, then humanity may not survive tomorrow. So I think that's kind of the argument that they were having. So maybe that's kind of where like Draconis and Lady Envy essentially took the same side opposing Rake. Rake ended up killing Draconis. Now, now he's got the sword. Lady Envy is maybe maybe looking for some revenge. And maybe that's what her motivation here is. You know, I don't know. Hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know yet if we're going to know it all. I guess we'll see. Right. But I at least kind of wanted to talk about that. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Moving on a little further down. Uh, dude, I love the Segula. They're so freaking cool. <laughs> <laughs> they might be my favorites now. But uh, Sanu is talking about how their island keeps getting invaded by these enemies. But they're not armed. So they send, like, I imagine they're, like, trainees to go kill them. Since they're not worth, they're not worth like dueling, and so I think these unarmed people. I mean, because we find out that it's, I mean, it's part of the Panion Domen, but it must be the Tenescalri, uh like horde. They must be, I don't know. They send over like a boatload of them at a time or something, and then they just get fucking slaughtered. And so then the Segula are like, you know what? We're tired of this bullshit. We're gonna go kill the dumbass that keeps sending his people here. And just be done with this. <laughs> and then they're like, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna give them some gifts to entice them." And <laughs> I don't know. It was just it was weird. Um, but I think they're cool as hell. And I, I like that. You know, they're like, "We're the we're the army here to punish punish the Panny and Doman." And talk like it's just like trying not to laugh because there's three of them. <laughs> so like, <laughs> yeah, like what the hell are three of you gonna do? But then the one's like, well, I'm number three. So he's like the third best one. Um, yep. I guess we don't really know. Like, so at the end of this chapter, it talks about how, uh, you know, the one he's 14 years old and an 11th level initiate. Um, I, I'm kind of curious as to how that scale goes. You know, is it the higher the number, the stronger? Or is it, you know, if you're a first level initiate, is that like the strongest? I, I mean, I guess I don't know that we know yet. I don't know. I always, I, I feel like their numbers are individual to the person, you know? So Mach being the third best, you know, I feel like he's the only third. Right. Yeah. Cause I don't think he's like third level. He's just number three. So I feel like, you know, Senu says he's 11th level initiate. I feel like he's like not even earned a number yet. Right. Yes. That is the feeling that I got, but I think it is the lower the number goes then like so when you become a first level initiate or maybe it maybe it is the other way around i guess where that number stops who knows yeah i mean i guess we don't really know but i did enjoy their uh i guess you could call it kind of an explanation or a brief history of the seg segula so are they on an island on genabacus do you think yeah i think they're off they're off the coast of like if you look at the map on the Panion Domain, where it's all like shaded in. Yep, I'm looking at the yep. map now. I think they're off to the coast, but I don't see any islands out there. I think they're like in Coral Bay somewhere. If I had to guess, I'm sure that it's just 
such a large view of the the map that we don't really get much you know my guess is they're inside coral bay there must be like a little island over there somewhere yeah i mean looking north there's fall isle yeah and there's even further north there's some other island with a city called Oren on it so i don't know hard to say i'm just assuming it's somewhere near the uh where the panians have already captured maybe somebody uh can clear that up for us without spoiling things Um, yeah that would be cool just it'd be cool to know or uh, yeah i don't know i feel like that's something that would maybe come up maybe they go there at some point i don't know maybe we know in this next section that rake goes there or went there right or went there yeah but yeah what a what a information filled section i don't know if i have any more that i really want to pick apart in there i think the whole the history with rake and lady envy and osric and the queen of dreams and brood gets mentioned later on in this chapter so what their purpose is what they're doing i know that it has something to do with the crippled god you know the segula and just the dynamics of that warrior society and just kind of what 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 it is what's their purpose essentially and on top of like talking ladies envy their banter together is is pretty great i loved all of that yeah i kind of i you know and talk talks about doing poses in the sunset i kind of imagine i'm doing you know like the uh the bodybuilder poses <laughs> you know just stuff like that <laughs> just really goofy ass shit for sure yeah yeah, yeah. but that's yeah. all i got cool well it was a very long section and it was we knocked out a few pages there mm-hmm. yeah no it was good i liked it all right well are we ready to move on now that we've talked for 40 minutes already <laughs> okay pieces of meat were cooking in the flames of fire lady envy appeared from the gloom with the two segula following behind her she takes note of the wonderful smell in the air from the cooking meat talk caught the rules casual turn and gloved hands lifting and the unsheathing of his swords faster than the scout's eye could track sparks flashed as steel met flint tool was driven back as blow after blow was driven down on him the two warriors disappeared into the darkness beyond the hearth's glow lady envy is heard saying that this was ridiculous sparks exploded 10 piece 10 paces away and talk shot a glance at mock mott and senu it is mock it's not Mott. Mock. Mock and Senyu. Senyu still sat by the fire, but Mock stood watching the battle. Tak thought to himself that Mock wouldn't be able to see better than he could. More sparks were seen in the night. Lady Envy was heard giggling, and Tak asked if she was able to see in the night. Lady Envy says that she can, and that this duel was, has brought back an old memory. Animander Rake had crossed paths with the Segula when he paid an unannounced visit to their island, knowing nothing of the inhabitants. Taking human form, he fashioned his own mask and walked through the main city's thoroughfare. Being that Rake is naturally arrogant, he showed no deference to those he crossed paths with. Another clash in the night broke up her recollection for a second. She continued on to say that he was there for two hours. Rake had described the ferocity of that short time and his dismay and exhaustion, which led him to withdraw into his warren. A cold voice said, Black Sword. They turned to see Mock facing them. Lady Envy said that this happened centuries ago. Mock explained that they never forgot where the opponents. 
and he said that the last swordsman Rake faced wore a mask with seven symbols. Mock acknowledged this with a tilt of his head and said that Blacksword holds the seventh position, and that mask still awaits him. The Segula would then would like Rake to make a claim to it. Envy smiled and said that soon he could extend that invitation to Rake. Mock said that it wasn't an invitation, but a demand. Envy laughed and explained that there was no one that Rake would meet with an unwavering eye. Mock said that they shall cross swords, as Rake is the seventh, but he is the third. She turned on him and asked Mock where the score of Segula went after Rake killed them. They ended up in Dragnapur and asked Mott if that's where he wanted to end up as well. Mock said that those that die fail, and that Segula do not spare thoughts for those that fail. Tak asked if that included Mock's brother. Just then, Tool approached, dragging through Rule's body by his collar. The two dogs trailed just behind. Envy asked if Tool had killed her servant. Tool explains that he had not. However, the Segula had he had some injuries and that he would eventually recover from. Envy said that this was not quick enough and to bring him to her. Mock interjected and said that the rule was not to be healed with magic. This angered Envy and she snapped. She spun and a wave of power surged out from her and struck Mock. He was sent flying and then landed with a thud. Envy said that her servants do not make demands of her. She then laid her hand on the rule's chest. Tak took notice of Tool and said that he looked all chopped up. Tool said that it had been a long time since he faced such a challenging opponent, not to mention only having to use the flat of his blade. Mock slowly rose and then faced the undead warrior. Envy said that there were to be no more duels this night, or she would not hold back on her wrath. Mock turned his attention away from Tool. Lady Envy straightened herself and then said that the rule was healed. She called over to Senyu and told him to gather the food and wine as a nice quiet dinner was in order. She flashed a smile at Tak and then added that some witty discourse was needed as well. It was now Tak's turn to groan. First thing here, the real only thing while it, what's happening, what's going on with Thrull and, and Tool battling it out in the nighttime. Lady Envy is essentially just recalling the story about Animander Rake. And I thought it was just a really cool way of getting a little brief history on Rake because we don't really know him outside of the present. Right. Uh, I kind of wonder. So, so Rake, I guess, joined the Segula. He'd be number seven <laughs> among them, which is pretty wild that he's not, you know, because you think like, oh, well, he's such a badass. He's got to be like number one, but he's, he's not even top five. He's barely top 10. Well, that's just because but, he hasn't faced the top you know well right but i mean if he was that exhausted after facing you know whatever numbers he faced could he handle you know one through six or six through one i guess i don't know um, i mean i don't get the impression that they would gang up on him i think that they would go one by one against him well i, I mean even still i mean i think they'd probably wear him down oh for sure but i kind of wonder so like you know say number eight gets killed by a non-segula I, I don't know why they would fight each other, I guess, or duel each other. Does does everybody, like, improve one rank then? Or how, I wonder how that works. No, they would. the person who bested the Segula would take its place. But what if it's their enemy? I would assume that they would take their place. As Mach said, they, you know, those who die fail. 
I think it's I don't know what like a way of like conscripting warriors into their warrior type culture is my way thinking about it. I can see that with like Rake because he's not like an enemy. He just happened to you know pick a bad spot to show up and fight all these guys. But if it's like you know if if it's freaking leader of the Panion Domen and he kills number four, whatever, whoever. Does the leader of the Panion Domen become that number? Like, yeah, I feel like the Panion Domen, like those, like they're like sworn enemies now. So well, I don't, don't feel think, like we'd let them take take over their spot. You don't think Rake was an enemy when he visited their island unknowingly? I mean, he didn't make. I don't think he seemed like an enemy. He was just somebody who kind of got in the wrong spot at the wrong time. I guess I'm just trying to make you think of like the Segula's perspective. You're sitting there eating your whatever you're eating, and then this big ass dude shows up with a fucking sword, and you do battle with him, and he bests you, and then they're offering him your mask because you died, you failed. It's it's I can see, I can see that in like cases like that, but not just like if they're going to war with somebody. It doesn't make sense to me that they would be like, okay, um, you can be number two now. Maybe I guess the, I don't know. I think we're talking about two different things, but possible. Yes. Maybe. I don't know. I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I can't think of. I feel like they would just, regardless of who it is or what they are to them, they would give them that person's place based on what I know, which is very little. Right. And to me, that, like, to me, that, that doesn't seem to make a ton of sense. Like, I get it. Like, if, like, if Rick's like, I want to challenge you, number three. And if I kill you, I get to be number three. But if the Segula are like, ah, we're going to, we're going to, you keep sending your people here. We're sick of killing them. So we're going to come kill you. I don't think like, to me, it wouldn't make sense to be like, ah, all right, well, we tried to kill you and that guy failed. So now you can just be one of us and take his spot. Like to me, that doesn't make sense. That's just, that's just what it was saying. So that's what I'm going off of. <laughs> I, like I said, I, it was almost like Rake dueled them. Is kind of what I feel like. I mean, it was obviously a, like a fight. But it wasn't right. like they were in an all-out war, so I feel like those are to me those are two different things, like a duel and like you know you're at a war are, are different. So I don't, I don't know. Is it kind of like in westerns when the bad guy shoots down the sheriff in a shootout and he becomes the sheriff? But if the bad guy brought an army of other cowboys and shot the sheriff, they wouldn't be accepted. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> fair enough all right cool well, we can move on i'm not yeah. trying to be hung up on it i'm just like no, no it's, it's fine it's, it's a good thing to converse about because you know it's not anything that we know about it's not like we're rich in that history you know we're just getting little glimpses of it so i mean granted both of our perspectives neither of us are right or wrong but it's still interesting to discuss right yeah yeah being that rake is naturally arrogant it's he showed no you know, deference to those he crossed paths with. And knowing what we know about the Segula, I can imagine why this got Rake into trouble. This, I guess, kind of adding on to that, but not really. Yeah, I I mean, I would think that even if he, like, was walking through there, and I guess even if he unknowingly gave them signs of submission, you know, like if he didn't look him in the eye or, or whatever their standards are, don't you think they'd be like, the fuck are you doing here <laughs> like okay we're gonna like try to kill you because you don't belong here that's my guess is what happened 
but it just it didn't help his case that yes he's naturally arrogant it probably just sped things up right yeah exactly but you know kind of going back to you know related subject right i mean the last swordsman that rake ended up facing was one that wore a mask with seven symbols in which section was it that we heard about the white face that was that was the last section right Mm, well, they talk about the white face Bargast at Bargast. No, the white face yeah. Bargast, but there's a there's a segula that has like a white mask, and it's not. I imagine that's like number one, or, or something. Right. Yes. Um, I don't remember what section that is, but it's got to be coming up pretty quick. I thought it was in the first section when Todd oh, was did... talking about the ranks and what he knew about. I guess I don't know. Did we talk about already the white mask? Did I not summarize it? I don't know. You summarized no. it, but I mean that's not a big deal. I mean we're talking about it now. Yeah. Yeah, it was in the first one. Clearly, you believe by virtue of his mask that he is highly ranked among his own kind. So this is talk talking about mock, and then he goes third. I think third highest. There's supposed to be a legendary segula with an unmarked mask, white porcelain. Not that anyone has ever seen him, except for the Segula themselves. Oh, yeah. It's all good. It's really interesting. It's all really interesting. This hierarchy, the culture, you know, Rake's interaction with them. And I mean, and now what's really messed up is, you know, we know what Dragnapur does because of Gardens of the Moon. Going back to that scene with Paran inside the sword and all those people, like, pulling this wagon, right? Some of them were Segula. Yeah. Might not have seen them, but I mean, right. they were in there somewhere. But it's just nice to kind of like tie those two things together, you know? Yeah. Um, one of my other thoughts was just the whole when Mach is saying that those who die fail uh, and they don't spare any thoughts for those that fail. And I just, it's just, I get just get the sense that this is a very cutthroat society. So that's kind of where I think that if someone is bested, like they don't care, they have no investment to that person anymore because they're dead they're just all about rank they're all about hierarchy they're all about the fact that like hey if you bested one of our best warriors well now you're them in their eyes from their perspective you know clearly they're demanding that rake pick up the seventh mask but he's not going to maybe he will but he hasn't yeah i guess i mean what does i don't think he's probably really got anything to gain by doing it Right. But maybe there is some motivation there. Who knows? But yeah, that's just kind of what it made me think. Of. And then the other part, just Tool saying that it's been a long time since he faced such a challenging opponent. But that's because he really only had to use the, the flat of his blade, right? Because he didn't want to kill him. And I thought this was really interesting to me because we're kind of getting a little bit more of Tool's personality, which I'm just I'm all out digging. And Tool could have easily just killed these guys and be done with it, but he doesn't, you know? So, like, I don't know if that's a respect thing towards Lady Envy or if that's just uh, he doesn't want to unnecessarily kill, even though he's being attacked. He's just defending himself. I feel like, um, I don't know, it's hard. I feel like it's maybe hard to say with Lady Envy because I feel like maybe she'd be pissed off if he killed one of them. But on the flip side of that, I almost think maybe she'd be like, well, he had it coming. Well, I you feel know, like she he, said he deserved that it. in an earlier chapter. Like, hey, if you guys go at it again, like, Tool is merely defending himself. So he does what he needs to do in doing that. Then that's on you. 
I would agree. Um, the last thing that I had to talk about, and it is just kind of at the end here where she flashes a smile at talk. And I still wonder if it's still flirtation and if talk is still thinking it's genuine or not, because I mean, honestly, I kind of question the same. I don't know if it is genuine or not. I know it's, it's hard to tell because she has kind of this, like, charm. it's almost like this charm that everything's kind of like a joke or maybe it's not. She's just, I, I can't, it's, it is hard to read her. Yeah. I mean, how does she mean it? I don't know. Yeah, for sure. I would a hundred percent agree with that. It's just, it's hard to say. So I guess that's one thing that I'm excited to read on about um, when she comes up. So, yeah. Well, anything else you want to talk about there? Not at all. <clears throat> well, we are 20% done with our sections. <laughs> 5%. No, you're right. No, I don't know. Well, we have, we have, we have 20 sections, right? We I guess we'd be 10, 10% done. We were both wrong. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> Onwards we go. Clearly math wasn't our strong suit. <laughs> no, not at all. It's late. Well, it's not late. But it's getting By the time it's done. It'll probably be late. Yeah. All right. Ready to move on here? Let's do it. All right. The three horsemen rode to the top of the low hill. Whiskey Jack wheeled his horse around to look at Pale. Quick Ben said nothing, watching his oldest friend. He thought to himself that upon this hill they came for Hairlock. Even though there was only empty armor there, they were still here rotting in the grass. They had just crawled out of the collapsed tunnels, leaving hundreds of their comrades behind, buried. They burned with rage, and at the rage they felt at their betrayal. They were ready to commit murder on this hill. His last thought for the time was that there was no burying the history of their lives. Yellow nails and fingers of bone claw from the ground at their feet and hold us fast. Whiskey Jack said to summarize, Mallet asked who should start. Whiskey Jack gave him a glare and Mallet continued on, saying that Paran's affliction, his mortal flesh, has the taint of an ascendant blood and ascendant places. Quickben would tell them all that neither of these things should be manifesting themselves as a sickness, but would be like a shove down a corridor. Quickben said that he keeps crawling back, and the more he tries to escape it, Mallet finishes his sentence, saying that the sicker he got. Whiskey Jack asked Paran himself was an ascendant. Quickben said he was as near as. Whiskey Jack continued on asking about the story of Rake and his sword. What was to be made of that? Mallet said it was troubling, and Quickben said it was hood damn scary. Whiskey Jack wanted to know why. They explained that Dragnipur wasn't Rake's sword. He didn't forge it, so how much does he know about it? And how much should he know about the sword? Where did those hounds go? Where it went, Paran is linked by blood. Mallet said that makes him unpredictable. Whiskey Jack wanted to know what was at the end of this, quote, corridor that they had described. Neither had an answer, but they both agreed that they should add a few shoves of their own, namely Silver Fox. She reads him like Tattersail used to read a deck of dragons, and she sees more each time she looks at him. Whiskey Jack said there would be no guarantee that she shares any information she finds. They thought if Tattersail and Nightchill's personality shone through, there may be a chance. Whiskey Jack said Tattersail was fine enough, but Nightchill? Very little was known about her. Quickben said she was a nasty bit of work, yet also mysterious as she was Malazan. Mallet asked what her warren was. He was told it was Rashan as best 
as could be identified. That was the information Silver Fox could draw upon, as it didn't seem like much of Nightshill had survived. Whiskey Jack asked Quick Ben if he was sure. He said he was not, and he thought to himself that there had been other Nightshills before the Malazan Empire. The first age of the Nathalog Wars, the liberation of Karakarang and Seven Cities 900 years ago, the Seti and their expulsion from Fen, on Quan Tali 2,000 years ago, a woman, a sorceress named Nightshill, if she's the same one, Whiskey Jack spat on the ground saying he wasn't happy. Quick Ben kept quiet and thought that he'd tell him about Burn, but if he's not happy now, how would he take the news of the world's impending death? He decided he'd deal with that on its own and jump when the time comes. The crippled god had declared war on the gods, on the warrens, on the whole damn thing and everyone in it. The crippled god would have to outsmart him, and Quick Ben thought he'd have him in circles before too long. After more silence, Whiskey Jack finally spoke up, saying to keep Paran facing the right direction and give him a shove if the opportunity arises. He told Quick Ben to use any and every means necessary to find out more info on Nightchill, and for Mallet to explain everything about Paran to Spindle, as Whiskey Jack wanted them all close enough to count his nose hair. Now that the Darujitan contingent is supposed to arrive at any moment at Brood's tent, they had best head back. Yeah, I feel like from here on out, these sections are a little bit more manageable. I think so. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of them, but yeah, they kind of shorten up. Um, first thing that I thought was cool is just kind of this, they almost seem to have, it's not nostalgic, but it, it you know, they're pretty much just being reminded of what they did after they emerged from the tunnels that collapsed, you know, back in Gardens of the Moon, right after the Battle of Pale. So I just thought this was a really cool reminiscing scene in how this section opens up. Like, that was just so cool to me to think about. Because, like, as you're reading it, my mind went back to that, I think it's the second or third chapter in Gardens of the Moon. So, yeah, they just, you know, Hairlock laying on the ground, his body's all, like, split in half, uh, you know. Yeah, his guts are hanging out. Yep. So, I just thought it was cool, thought I'd make mention of it. Definitely. I think the, I guess the first thing that I had here is talking, you know, about Rake, uh, you know, what he knows or doesn't know about the sword. Um, I guess just personally, I kind of feel with, you know, we know Rake's pretty old, so I, I feel like he's got probably a pretty good grasp on what the sword is capable for the most part. I don't know how you feel. I feel opposite of that. <laughs> I feel really? like, uh, I feel like he doesn't know. I feel like it's just one of those things where he ended up besting Draconis or whoever held the sword. And it's one of those things, those phenomena where information just doesn't get passed down because I mean, what's Draconis going to do? Tell him everything about the sword while he's like waiting to die, you know? So, I mean, what is there to discover if information goes with you to your grave? How else do you find out about it? I don't know. I feel like there must be some sort of visual of, it's like the one of the fucking Ghostbuster ghost catching boxes, you know, like that's I think that's like what I envision when you get somebody with the sword is they're just getting <laughs> sucked up into the ghost trap. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, his, his sword. That's so funny. maybe he doesn't know exactly what's like going on, but he's like, oh, gotcha, bitch. Well, I feel um, like everybody else is in the same situation, even in the last chapter and throughout this one. 
is that they're all just very confused about what is going on. You know, this whole thing with Paran is new information to everybody. So granted, that doesn't really make my case, but I'm just saying that if it's new to them, the word has gotten out about Dragnapur. And I think at this point in time, Rake doesn't know, but eventually will kind of figure out, oh, well, shit, there's a an escape clause to my sword. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think he I, I don't think he knows about that, but I think he knows it like trapped souls, at least. Oh, OK. Gotcha. So, OK. So we're on opposite ends of the spectrum. Yes, I will agree with you. I think that, yes, he does and is aware that what it does, but I don't think that he's aware of the clause. I agree. Yes. Okay. Cool. Hey. At least uh, not yet. I like how we went from opposing views to now. <laughs> yeah, we just. I, yeah, just. I wasn't being clear enough. I. No, fair but, enough. Yeah, you know, but I, you know, I was. The reason I thought that is, well, like you know, quick band whiskey jack. They all these people. I was trying to think, like you know, they know about what the sword can do, and is that only because Paran told them or not? I didn't remember. Obviously. The escape clause is a little different thing, but um, right, you yeah, know, it's stealing stealing souls. I didn't think they told him about that, but maybe they did. I don't remember. Fair enough. Um, my next point is about Nightchill here and how they briefly kind of talk about her Warren being Rashan. And from what I understand about previous chapters, is that Rashan is like a part of the Warren of Darkness. It's like a Warren of Dark, right? I don't remember. So okay. sure. Okay. From what I understand, that's correct. But if I'm thinking about this and you know, it makes sense a little bit, right? So silver Fox. So in the prologue, we find out that night or we figured out that night chill is the sister to K rule or cruel and draconis. Right. So that means that they are all siblings. No, Draconis was her father. No. Oh, Nightchill. Sorry. I was yes. thinking Lady Abby. Yes, Nightchill. Right. So they were all essentially, I don't know if Draconis is like Father Dark. I don't know if he is who created Rake. That I don't think has really been said or specified, but that's kind of where my thought is going. So are they? I, I'm just wondering, like, I know they called each other like brother and sister, and was that more. I guess I don't remember if that was more of like a formality or are they actually siblings? I was under the impression that they were actually siblings. And if they're not, then I guess this whole theory is just tossed out the window, but that's fine. But I'm pretty <laughs> sure that they were that they were siblings. I guess I don't remember one way or the other. So I'll, okay. I'm well, listening. I'm sorry. I guess humor Let's me. Do. Yeah. Yes. So if they are siblings, then that would mean that her warn of being Rashan would be true that it is uh, you know, part of the dark hold or high house dark, right? Or darkness, whatever you want to call it. It's a affiliated to that warrant, right? Does that make sense? Sure. Okay. So <laughs> with that premise in mind, right? Like Night Chill being an elder goddess from the warrant of dark or house dark is now a segment within Silver Fox who you could say by proximity is also part of House Dark. And then when Paran is the ruler of the sword, right? Like this whole table thing and him being revealed 
as you know kind of like the master of the deck in the last chat well i mean i feel like it's official in this chapter but they like speculate it in the last chapter that is also a i think that he is now tied to house dark because of that i think that the warren that he set the hounds free into the sword or from within the sword is where you would go to reach the house of dark i think that is where the hounds are so essentially silver fox night chill paran rake k rule they're all like everything is tied to high house dark at this point in my mind it's interesting like k rule just I- thinking about it if if he is a brother to draconis then he is also from High House Dark. We never get his origin story, but this is where he's from, if that is true. Maybe it's something we'll learn more about. So I just, I think it's interesting, and it, it kept bugging me every time I, like, reread the chapter, which, granted, was only twice. I read, I read, I reread the first half more than I did the last half. And it just, it kept bugging me. I'm like, what is the connection here? And it's High House Dark. That to me is kind of like the central theme with these characters at this point. I think I can get on board with that. And then you add in the whole Talan Imas stuff with Silver Fox. And that's essentially two very powerful houses or whatever the Talan are. I don't even know if you really call them a house because they're not really in the deck of dragons, which alludes to something later on in this chapter in one of your sections wonder if we're thinking about the same part probably but i don't know does does that sound crazy does i mean do you see that connection there i can see it i feel like it's mind-blowing to know where K-, k rule is coming from you know like when i'm like oh holy shit cruel is from high house dark like that just for whatever reason baffled me because you don't really get much about his story or we haven't yet anyways right yeah we just know that he's cursed and people have forgotten about him because of that curse we you know and outside of like the small little influences he's had on some of the overarching stories we don't really know much more about him no no we don't that's all i had to say about that i know that that was kind of a longer rant but yeah i just i find it interesting that they're connected to high house dark in some way shape or form gotcha all right. What did you think of, you know, where it's talking about all the different night shills throughout history? Do you think it's the same person? I definitely do. Yeah. I do too. I mean, I com- so. like a name like Night Shill, like not everybody's naming their kid fucking Night Shill, right? Like it's got to be. This- <laughs> no. No. It's the same person. Yeah. My kind of my last thought then, uh, where Quick Ben's thinking about telling Whiskey Jack about Burn, um, you know, and like, oh, well, he's in bad mood now, but he's going to be really pissed when I tell him that the world's going to end. You know, the crippled god declaring war on basically the entire world. Do you think that's a different war than like the Panion? Because I don't really feel like they're that related, just only that they're occurring at the same time. Um, There's parts of this chapter that make me think the other way, but I guess I don't know if I have an opinion on it yet. That's fair. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's unless the Pandians orchestrating everything, which, I mean, I guess, who knows? Could be. We don't. Why not? They are a religious cult, right? From what I understand. Who's to say that yeah. they're, they're not honoring or 
what's the word when you when you worship worship thank you who's to say that they're not worshiping the crippled god and so they certainly could be so yeah that's all i have to say about that okay forest uh i guess i'd be ready to move on then if you're ready all right whiskey jack arrived at the tent that had been arranged for Dujek. He swung down from his horse and Artanthos appeared suddenly and offered to take Whiskey Jack's horse. The commander asked if Dujek was in the tent, to which Artanthos replied that he was and that he was expecting the commander. Without hesitation, Whiskey Jack entered the tent. Dujek rose from his cot, saying that it was about damn time, and to grab a couple of cups and pour some wine for them. Neither of them said a word as Whiskey Jack arranged some furniture and then filled their cups. Dujek started the conversation by talking about Moonspawn and how they'll likely see its appearance in Coral, or even later. Dujek wonders the reason why Rake has decided to throw himself at Moonspawn and Moonspawn at the Panion Domen. Why? Well, for reasons unknown, and maybe it was that Rake liked to fight. Whiskey Jack said that this was surprising as he found Rake to be a reluctant to be reluctant based on his observations at the Battle of Pale. Dujek countered the counter and said that it was because the Tisti Andi were preoccupied elsewhere and that it was a good thing. And at that moment in time, or they all would have been annihilated. Whiskey Jack said that he might be right. And it seems they're mustering a whole lot to go against a middling-sized empire of zealots, but something is building. Whiskey Jack then trailed off. Dujek agreed and then shrugged and said that they'll see what they see. He then asked Whiskey Jack if he spoke with Twist. Whiskey Jack nodded and explained that Twist agreed that his flights should remain unseen. No supplying the army while they are on the march, and he has scouts near the Panion border, Hidden, but close enough to strike when the time came. Dujek said that this was good, and then asked if the army was ready to march. Whiskey Jack responded and said that it was ready, but the question remains of supplies on their march. Dujek said that they would talk about this when the emissaries from Rujistan arrived. Dujek changes the subject to that of Silver Fox. Whiskey Jack said that it was hard to say. He expresses his concern to the High Fist and Silver Socks. Silver Socks. Silver Fox asserting that they would need the Talani Mas to go up against the Panion Domain. He adds that they don't know enough of their enemy. Dujek said that this will change and asked if Wistu Jack had instructed Quick Ben to make contact with the mercenary company in Capustan. The commander said that Quick Ben had worked something out, but they'll wait and see if the mercenaries will take the bait. Dujek then goes back to conversing about Silver Fox. Whiskey Jack explains that. Tattersail is in that Rivi's child body, and they'll just have to wait and see how it unfolds. Dujek makes a comment about a creature that devours its parent. When Whiskey Jack cuts him off and asks when Talan, when the Talan had ever shown compassion or restraint. They were on Kellenven's leash and no one else's. Fighting alongside them back in Seven Cities was not a comforting experience. The High Fist said that expediency goes hand in hand with discomfort. Now they are back, and they are on the, the leash of a child's. Whiskey Jack thought that this was a curious observation, but he sees what the high fist means. Kellenved was able to utilize the Talan with restraint. Outside of the mess at Aaron, Dujek asked how many kids the commander knew that were capable of restraint, and that Tattersail's wisdom needed to come to the fore. 
Whiskey Jack said that they were doing all they could to make this happen. Dujek nodded and then asked how Whiskey Jack felt about their newfound allies. Whiskey Jack explains that the loss of the Crimson Guard was a blow and that the collection of various mercenaries was a drop in quality. The Mott Irregulars being the best of the bunch. The Rivi and Bargas were solid enough, but the Tustiandi were unmatched. Brood still needs the Malzans badly. Dujek wondered if perhaps Brood needed them more than they than Brood needed his forces. Whiskey Jack explains to the High Fist that Rake and Moon spawns are Brood's shaved knuckle in the hole. And with the Talan joined at their side, he doesn't think of any other force that could match them. Dujek told the commander to stow that thought so deep that it will never see the light of day. What happens after they march and face a tyrant would be a conversation for another time. But for now, they are both edging around a deadly pit. They both said Kalar, and Whiskey Jack told the High Fist that Kalar would attempt to kill Sober Fox. Dujek said that with Brood around, Kalar wouldn't as Brood would go at Kaller. After refilling his drink, he leaned back and explained that Brood was the real shaved knuckle. Dujek explains to Whiskey Jack the things he's read about Brood, Brood's time in later on. You don't want to get that man riled up. Rake is a cold, taut power, but with Brood, with his hammer, it was said that it was the only thing that could make Burn wake from her sleep. Whiskey Jack thought about this for a while and then said that they have to remain hopeful that Brood will continue to protect the child. Dujek asserted that Kaller will attempt to persuade the warlord and he may, seeks Rake, he may seek Rake's help in doing so. Whiskey Jack eyed the high fist and then asked if Kaller paid Dujek a visit. Dujek explained that he was pers a persuasive bastard and even said that he holds no animosity towards Whiskey Jack even though he hadn't been struck in centuries. The commander had thoughts about Kaller's political motivations for this. The commander said that he wouldn't stand back and let the man kill a child, regardless of what power she holds inside of her. Dujek glanced up and said, even in the defiance of his command, should he give it? Whiskey Jack said that they've known each other too long. Dujek said that they did and added that the commander was stubborn. Whiskey Jack said that only when it matters. Dujek said that he should demote the commander, and Whiskey Jack laughed. Dujek said to pour him another cup, as they have the emissary from Darugistan to discuss. Very conversational section. Um, first thing that I had here is, I thought it was when Dujek was kind of countering Whiskey Jack's counter, uh, saying that Rake was only reluctant because the Tistiandi were preoccupied elsewhere. And I think this is referring to the Tistiande attempting to start a war with the Assassin's Guild in Jerusalem. Oh, yeah, I would agree. I'd, again, I, I like all the nods to the first book. I mean, I don't think this book would make much sense without them, but it's nice to kind of have, I guess, those like recaps and... And they're not even really recaps. They're just adding more information to what you already know. Yeah, well, I mean, they're nods, but I guess, like, in the reality of things, like, all this stuff in Gardens of the Moon hasn't taken place, like, that long ago, really. Right, exactly. To us, it was a long time ago. It's been over a year since we've read that book. Oh, right. It's, it's really cool, you know? I mean, I never would have put it together. I mean, yes, Rake, you know, was the only one from Moonspawn at the City of Pale, and like, it wasn't really, it didn't dawn on me that it was the Tistiande 
starting the Assassin's War in Jerusalem um, until like way later in the book. So now it's just kind of it's just tying those two pieces together. Right. Do you think we'll find out at some point what the Talanimus did at Aaron? Yes. Eventually. Somewhere along the line. I feel so, yeah. I'm probably not in this book, but I would imagine. If anything, I would imagine probably in House of Chains. Because it was a you know I mean it was talked about a few times in Dead House and now it's I, I think that was the first time it's been brought up in this book. Whoa! I just had a really abstract thought. I said the House of Chains, and later on in this chapter, uh, Paran has some chains around him. So do you think Paran starts a new house or something? I don't know. You could. I've got a bold thought here also, and I'm trying to think. Lay it on me. I'm trying. I'm trying to look at what you wrote that made me think that. <laughs> okay. Well, I, okay. So I think Kalor will succeed in killing Silver Fox at some. Think so. I do. Why is that? I just feel like she would be a character that you could probably get a good reaction out of killing off for one. Um, you know, how many times have they said Kalor is like going to try to kill her? So I don't know. I imagine things will get messy and he'll do it at some time. When? I don't know. I would think in this book it'll happen. Hmm. Not in this sub book, but in the book as a whole. That is definitely very bold. I don't know. I guess I've just, I've always imagined Silver Fox and Tattersail as a long-term player. I guess we'll see. I don't know. And yeah, that would be, do you want to take a pie on that? <laughs> sure. I'll do it for you. Oh, really? Yeah. So you think she'll die in this book? I'll stick with what I said. I think she'll die in this book. All right. This is going to be great. I can't wait to come <laughs> out. <laughs> we'll be we'll be even. Uh, I guess I don't know how confident. I'm, I, I feel pretty confident it will happen in this book. All right, man. I think it would be, you know, a like an emotional kick in the pants for sure. I'm not taking a pie if you're right. All right. <laughs> And he's like, that's not fair. Oh, why am I doing this again? <laughs> mm, you got me all psyched out, man. <laughs> Come on, man. Fuck it. Why not? Who cares? If anything, I will, I will say, I don't know if I feel as confident about it as I did my views in Deadhouse Gates, but I... I, th I think I would say I'm probably 75% sure that Silver Fox will die. Was something spoiled for you? No, not at all. Okay, just checking. No, I would have told you something was spoiled. Okay. Awesome. Um, so going back to this section, when Dujek and Whiskey Jack are kind of talking about the Talani mass and the restraint and you know, how many kids did the commander knew that were capable of restraint and that Tattersail's wisdom needed to come to the fore? It kind of made me think, do you think that Nightchill and Tattersail are battling for control? Mainly, not necessarily just to exist, but to control the Talani mass for their own purposes. Like, Nightchill totally wants vengeance against the Malazan Empire. Um, I guess I hadn't really thought about it in that terms. I, do I think they're fighting each other for control? Yes. 
but I had not thought about the added aspect of, for the reason of using the Talanimus. Which makes me wonder, I guess I would have to... I would have to go back and read Gardens of the Moon, but this makes me think that Cruel and Pran Cole did not know that Nightchill was still living inside the body. I don't know if they would have done this ritual had they known that. Maybe. I'm wrong. I don't know. Because if I feel like they did this ritual because they needed a flesh and blood bone caster. They needed somebody that had not gone through the ritual to be a Talani mass bone caster. And this was their way of doing it. However, I don't think that they would have done it knowing who Nightchill was. And maybe that is the case. Maybe they didn't, they did know that Nightchill existed there. And I'm just not remembering correctly, but they, because they didn't know of her or about her or even how she died, that, she could potentially take control and totally debunk everything that they planned. Or maybe this is what they planned. Maybe they do want Nightchill to seek revenge against the Malazan Empire. Could be. I don't know. Maybe this is their way of getting back at what Kellenved made them do. I don't know. But just thought it was an interesting thought. The thought where Dujek wondered if perhaps Brood needed them more than they needed him. and. I don't know how I feel about this statement as it's suggesting a little bit of like a stuck-up nose. And maybe it's true, but Brood and Dujek have been at odds with each other for 12 years. You'd think that Dujek would have a little bit more respect, but I guess what do you think about that? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess who's got the bigger numbers? I would think that Brood does. So why would Dujek say that Brood needs them more than they need. Maybe just for the resources, I guess. I, I don't know. I guess I'm not sure. I feel like I had a thought on this earlier, and I can't remember what exactly it is now. Okay. Well, if it comes <laughs> if back. It comes, if, yeah, I'll let you know. I feel like a lot of these sections kind of revolve around the same theme or the same conversations, but just from someone else's perspective. So um, mixed in with kind of telling a little bit of a tale. But anyway, the other thought that I had was when Dujek is talking about Brood and his hammer and that it could wake Burn from her sleep. And I kind of wonder if Quick Ben either knows about this or will discover it and will potentially try to convince the warlord to use the hammer to wake her up from her fever dreams. But I feel this, like later on they kind of talk about that. Right. But I'm wondering if Quick Ben knows about it. Do you think Quick Ben knows about the hammer and waking up Burn? Was was it from Quick Ben's point of view when they were talking about how Brood returned with the hammer after a hundred years or whatever it was? Or who no. was who was that? I think that was Rake and Brood having a private conversation. Mm. Okay, but that was um, Dujek was talking about Brood. Huh. Well, I mean, I guess I just I wonder whether I guess the semantics don't matter, but I just I wonder if it's going to come down to brood waking burn and but does that unleash that cause that cataclysmic event that quick ben was discussing with the old witch of tennis you know i feel like if you were to wake up the world lava would start flowing again and uh, earthquakes and tectonic plate shifting and all that shit you know natural yeah. 
I kind of feel like it's probably like a last resort type thing. Yeah, because they do kind of, you know, later on in the chapter, Brood and Rake do talk a little bit of the consequences of if he were to do that. So I guess maybe we could talk about it then too, but it's just there's a lot of things in the beginning of this chapter that tie into the the end of the chapter and even in the middle. So it's just it I mean we could talk about it either at either end. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah, I mean, when we continue on, I mean, I think that'd be fine. Cool. Um, the other thought that I had was Kalor kind of seems like a teenage girl trying to backstab her best friend because she's want she wants her ex-boyfriend back or something. <laughs> you know? Like, just the balls that he had to, like, confront Dujek and, like, try to persuade Dujek to kill Silver Fox, you know? And it almost kind of seems like Dujek's on the fence about it, too. Because he talks about, like, I think he calls her, like, a creature. Like, what creature would feed on an old woman's life force or something like that? Well, I mean, yeah. yeah but it's, I mean, we know it's she's not doing that intentionally. It's just how she was created. You know, she can't help it. Right. But I guess, what's what's in it for Kalor if Silver Fox dies? Why is he so afraid of the Talani Moss? I don't know. I mean, I guess if if he can get rid of what well, what what curse did Nightshow put on him? I don't remember. I think they was, all cursed. Him. She, yeah, they all put different curses on him. But what was Nightshow's that he wouldn't ascend? Kalor got one curse from three. Kalor cursed all three of them. Well, they all said you know they all said different things from it. You know, like oh, you'll no age unending. You'll never ascend. Right. You'll always be second best, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't remember what but which ones was specifically Nightshow's. But I think that's the only reason he wants Silver Fox dead is because he wants Silver Fox dead. I think, I guess I think he wants Silver Fox dead. To me, it almost feels like, well, if, if he can get rid of Nightshill, then he can break that part of the curse. And then maybe he can, you know, break the other two parts of the curse also. Maybe. Yeah, that's a good point. I like it. We'll just go with that because that sounds logical. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see, I guess. Yeah. The last thing that I had in this chapter was uh when Dujek was just like well what if i gave the order and whiskey jack said that they would know each other they've known each other too long and then Dujek said that yeah it's because you were you're stubborn and i just i think that and then whiskey jack was just like only when it matters that he's stubborn and i think this is just one of the many reasons i really enjoy whiskey jack's character uh it was just nice to see his stance so blatantly laid out yeah, he's pretty just a straightforward guy. Absolutely. But with that, those were kind of my talking points on that particular section. And, you know, it was very conversational. But again, I enjoy the dynamics between Dujek and Whiskey Jack. Again, I can only imagine what it is that's that's pummeling through their minds, right? Like, they have no idea what Silver Fox is doing. They have... You know, no idea what exactly is afflicting Paran. They're just kind of all on the edge of their seats right now. And it's just creating this like weird tension for me. Where do you think it's going? I don't know. Yet to be unveiled, I guess. But I mean, what do you do when you're in those situations, right? Like you have this knowledge, but what do you do about it? Because it's clearly too early to tell. You just got to write it out, I guess. Hold on. I don't know if some people have that patience, though. True. That's fair. People like me who 
really like to prevent things because honestly, sometimes it's more work on the back end than if you would have just prevented it, you know, why not just take right. care of it right then and there, you know, like what consequences is going to cause? Well, the consequences are endless. So why don't we just kill her now? Cause nothing will change with her dead. Maybe. Sorry. Just me thinking weirdly. You're all good. All right. I'll shut up. All right. Section five here. Two hours in. <laughs> Brood asked, what if Calor was right? The Mibe's eyes narrowed and said, then he better give him the okay to kill her the same time he kills her child. Brood scowled, saying that he remembered her from when he campaigned in the North. She was young and beautiful, and what her child had done to her now caused him great pain. The Mibe said the pain she felt was worse, but she chose to accept it. Brood said her daughter was killing her. Why? The Mibe looked around and glanced at Corlette, her face filled with despair. She said Silver Fox was of Talan, of the Talan Imus. They have no life force to give. They are kin, yet can offer no sustenance because they are undead, and she is flesh and blood. Tattersail is also dead. So is Nightchill. Kinship is more important than one might think. Blood-bound lives are the web that carries each of them. They make up that which a life climbs, from a newborn all the way through adult. Without that life force, one would wither and die. To be alone is to be ill, not only spiritually, but physically. She is her daughter's web, and she was alone in that. Brood shook his head, saying her answer did not answer his question about her impatience. She claims she commands the Talanimus, that they have heard her call. So doesn't that mean they have already accepted her? Corlett spoke, asking if he believed that Silver Fox needed to hasten her growth in order to be accepted by the Talan, that they would that they wouldn't accept a child summoner. Brood said only said he saw the reason she was doing this to her mother. The Maybe said he may be correct, as blood and flesh only hold so much power. The limit is always finite. For being such as Rake and Corlett included, they possess centuries of living required to contain what they command. While Silver Fox does not, or rather her memories tell her she does, yet her childlike body denies these memories. So vast power awaits her, and to command it she must be a woman grown, and even them. Corlett said it was an interesting notion that ascendancy is born of experience. The Maybe added that experience tempers. Brood spoke, saying that this is what Calor fears, untempered power. Corlett said, Maybe it was that Calor was the reason for Silver Fox impatience. She wants to grow in order to alleviate his fears. Brood said it was more likely she knows she'll have to defend herself from him. Corlett said there was a secret between the two. There was silence. They all knew there was truth to this, that one of the souls within Silver Fox had crossed paths with Calor. Brood broke the silence, saying the child possesses life experiences, three malas and mages. The might be continued on. A Thelomen, two women, and herself, one father and three reluctant mothers, all to the same child. The father's presence is so faint she suspects it's only a memory of Nightshell and of the two women she is looking to discover them. Though what she had learned of Tattersail had comforted her. Corlett asked about Nightshell. Brood thought Rake had killed her here, at Pale. Corlett said no. She was betrayed and ambushed by Tashran, and since then Tashran had fled back to the Empress. She asked the Maibi what she knew of her. 
She said she had seen flashes within Silver Fox that she attributed to Nightchill. Anger, a lust for vengeance, possibly against Tayshren, and soon there would be a fight for control between Tattersail and Nightchill. The winner will control her daughter. Brood asked what they could do to help Tattersail. The Maivi said the Malazans were also trying to do the same thing. They should trust Whiskey Jack and the former lover of Tattersail named Paran. Corlat said she had spoken with Paran and that he was an honorable man. Brood took her word for it. He told the Maivi to stay close to her daughter and that should she see Nightchill arise and Tattersail fading, to let him know immediately. The Maivi knew if that happens, she would see her child killed. Brood said... He had not come to a conclusion on the matter, but such an event may lead to him more directly supporting the Malazans in their efforts on Tattersail's behalf. The Maivi asked how he would do that. He only said to have faith in him. Reluctantly, she said she would inform him if it came to it. Horlachelle entered the tent, saying the Darujistan contingent had arrived. Brood was ready to meet them. Man, the Maivi. The Maivi, Maivi, Maivi. Um, Shield Anvil Dylan commented on uh, one of our, I think it was last episode, or even the episode before that, about Erickson, I guess, in an interview, had said that the Maivi is based off what his wife went through with some postpartum depression, which kind of makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. But, you know, I feel like it also plays into parenthood, you know? I mean, when you're going through raising a child it seems like it takes forever and maybe that's not necessarily the mybe's case but you know as they get older you're like holy shit that went fast uh, yeah and it's i mean it's draining on top of that i mean not in the same sense of what the mybe's going through but like i mean especially when your kids are young i mean yeah it's you you know you're not sleeping you get stressed and this and that like but it isn't easy for it because you're a lot younger but as they go grow up like i am i do not have the same amount of energy i did when i was in my mid-20s <laughs> definitely i hear you i just think that that's an interesting correlation yeah um my first point here you know this quote about kinship being more important than one might think um that i, I basically took that word for word because i didn't think that i could i guess translate that into uh something simpler or maybe uh i don't know just easier for me to type i guess but um it was pretty deep i I don't i mean yeah i don't know entirely what all to make of it but it was uh kind of profound i think oh yeah i mean definitely you know i think that it's hinting at parenthood and the fact that the mybe doesn't really get a normal parent experience she gets a very abbreviated one right exactly so yeah definitely profound i really liked it i really enjoyed it as well so i appreciate you calling it out yeah one of the um, other that i thought was cool before you move on was just yeah. the explanation of you know the talan they have no life force to give which accentuates my earlier comment about th- that they need a flesh and blood bone caster because they have none they've all gone through the ritual like putting all your eggs in a basket and it's like oh shit we needed one out <laughs> <laughs> whoops shit yeah i guess i didn't i didn't really think of that so yeah it just i don't know it was just like a cool little thing uh my next point here where Corlette's, you know she thinks it's interesting an interesting thought that ascendancy is born of experience 
I guess I don't know how you felt, but I guess I didn't I didn't know that I put much thought into Silver Fox being an ascendant. Um, I guess I don't know if if that had been mentioned in a previous chapter, and I'm just not remembering it, um, or if this is kind of a new thing altogether. I mean, I guess in my mind, I just uh, I imagined her as kind of like a top player in the story, and usually the top players are all ascendants or near ascendancy. I guess in my mind, I would say that she was an ascendant. I mean, she's definitely something, you know, with everything that she'd gone through, but... Yeah, I don't know. I guess she doesn't show up on the deck of dragons like we see with Paran. So maybe she isn't yet. Maybe she will be. Maybe that's another reason she won't survive, Justin. Mm, Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we will. So where Coralette's talking about you know, there being a secret between Silver Fox and Kalor that one of the souls within Silver Fox had crossed paths with Kalor. I thought that had been mentioned, or maybe that's just something we knew just being the reader, but the characters don't. Right. It totally is. Because, I mean, that's essentially how we discovered that Silver, or I mean, so Night Chill was in Silver Fox. It was because we just kind of put the pieces together. But yeah, it, it definitely... I don't think that they are aware of this, clearly, because they are suspecting something based on the way Kalor and Silver Fox are interacting with each other. So it also just kind of adds the the heightened tension to these characters. You know, all of them have a different type of tension, and they all kind of stem around different concerns with Silver Fox. Whether that's Kalor, whether that's the Talani Mas, whether that is the the link between her and, and Paran, you know, it's just, it has to do something. So all of these different perspectives are clearly concerned about something, and there's just a growing tension of unease throughout this entire chapter, which is just captivating from a reader's perspective. <laughs> right, yeah, it is. Also, speaking of souls... They mentioned Bellardin in this section, and I guess, like, I never really gave it any thought, because, like, to me, it doesn't make any logical sense as to how Bellardin would also be another soul trapped in Silver Fox. But do you think that he actually is, or do you agree, as they mentioned here in the section, that Bellardin is purely just a memory from Nightchill? Um, I guess I kind of thought that he was there, but maybe he wasn't strong enough to have like a dominating presence. Um, that he's just kind of, I guess, like background noise. Um, Fair. Does that mean he's there though? Uh, uh, I mean, I can see your point, you know, where he's just, you know, like the memory of Night Chill, but I don't know. Obviously, like I think he must be the father that's, uh, you know, talked about, right? Right. Because Bellardin was a Thelemin, correct? Mm-hmm. And then the three reluctant mothers, it, uh, I guess one must be referring to the Maibi, Tattersail, and then Night Chill. Are those the three, yes. three mothers? Yeah. Okay. I guess when I was I, when I was questioning that, maybe I wasn't thinking of the Maibi at the time. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if a memory would be enough to be, I guess, like... Enough to dominate. Well, or just to be considered like the father within or whatever. I don't know. I think he's got to be there a little bit just hanging out. I don't know. Yeah, Probably. <laughs> I guess I guess we'll find out. I mean, I don't think I don't think he's there. I don't think his soul is there. I think it's just a memory of from like from Nigel. Gotcha. 
Um, and then my last thought, I must just be misremembering, but I thought Tayshren was a guy. He is. So, okay, then where it says Tayshren had fled back to the Empress, she asked the Maivi what she knew of her, is what I had written down. Did I just butcher that? I think maybe, um, or or maybe her is referring to the Empress. Oh, that could be too. So that makes sense. Either, yeah. Okay. So, um, the other point that I had, and you know, they even kind of talk about what I brought up a little bit ago about Tattersail and Nightchill, and the winner will control her daughter. I think it's interesting that we have in the previous section, we've got Dujack and Whiskey Jack again, kind of talking about Silver Fox and how to make absolutely sure that Tattersail comes to the fore, her wisdom comes to the fore, and uh, Brood, Corlat, and the Maivi are essentially having the same discussion. Different type of conversation, but they still have the, the same goal, and that is to make sure that Tattersail wins instead of... Yes. Them. So I just, I think that's cool. And, you know, none of these characters are all talking together. They're having separate conversations, but the same, the same strategy. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of neat. Yeah, that's all I really had to say um with that particular section. Yeah, another, you know, conversational section, just more tension wrought, more questions that the readers kind of know, but these characters are just like so confused, you know, and I can only imagine what is swirling through everybody's mind given this situation, which I just just crazy to think about yeah it's it is not a simple thing right all right i'm ready we're ready absolutely go ahead the driver of the ornate carriage must have fallen asleep the huge double doors opened and a slippered foot emerged arrayed before the carriage were the representatives of the two allied armies the rivy matron had been left exhausted by the previous night's conversation with brood Holding back on so much of the hard questions from the warlord had been difficult, but also necessary. Silver Fox's meeting with Paran had been far more strained and uncertain than the Maivi had suggested to Brood. Nor had the time between nor had the time between diminished the awkwardness of the meeting. Worse, the reunion must have triggered something within Silver Fox, as the as the child has drawn heavily on the Maivi since then stripping away year after year of her life. She wondered if it was Tattersail or Nightchill that drained her of her life. She tells herself that this will end soon. She looked forward to the release of the hooded she looked forward to the release of the hooded one's embrace. Silver Fox's allies now. She pleads with the Rivy Spirits to make her certain of Silver Fox's allies as she cannot go on. The slippered foot was attached to a very rotund band as he made contact with the ground. He had a handkerchief and was wiping his forehead. He exclaimed that, damn, it was hot. Caladan Brood stepped forward and welcomed the man and introduced himself and Dujek. Krupp said that he was honored by the welcome, but he wonders what they would unveil when the actual officials from Jerugistan arrive. He tells them all to look to the south as the counselor's carriage approaches. A great raven's cackle could be heard cutting the silence after Krupp's announcement. Despite the Maivi's frazzled mind, she smiled and thought to herself that she had met this man before. She stepped forward and said to Krupp that he had been in her dreams. 
Krupp eyed her in alarm and said that all things were possible. Crone could be heard cackling a second time. The Mighty added that she was younger then, and with a child. They were in the company of a bone caster, and an elder god. Krupp was at a loss for words. His face was flushed, dismay shortly following. He gazed at her a moment longer and then looked at the child beside her. She noted his narrowing of eyes and couldn't help but think that he had sensed the way things were between them. She wondered how he was able to do it so quickly. How profound was her link? Brood cleared his throat and welcomed Krupp. Brood explains to Krupp that they are aware of Silver Fox and being that Krupp has the mortal, was the mortal that witnessed the birth, they wonder who the Elder God was. The answer to that question would determine their relationship with the child. Krupp rambles on about the situation he's found himself in, not giving Brood a solid answer. He peered over his shoulder to see the other carriage approach. A cry came from the other carriage cursing Krupp and asking what it was that he was doing there. Krupp mocks Murillo for, having mule, for driving mules and asks him if he switched professions. A balding man steps out of the carriage, a face dark with anger. With his arms wide, Krupp took a step back and welcomed Call and Estra... I can't even say his name anymore. Estrasian Diarl, who was walking up behind Cole. Call. Krupp explains that now all vital Jerusalem council members are now gathered. Call said except for Krupp, who is backpedaling to his own carriage. Krupp tells him that it is untrue as he is here on behalf of alchemist Baruch. Call stopped and crossed his arms and questioned the legitimacy of this claim. Krupp explains that he and Baruch were so close that such words didn't have to be said. Call tells Krupp enough and turns to Brood and introduces himself and Diaro. He explains to the warlord that Krupp was unintended and indeed unwelcome. Brood replied that they had a need for him, and that he'll explain all in good time. Call swung to Krupp and asked what outrageous lies he had said. Krupp appeared offended and made his case that he wasn't lying, and that his presence was needed here, and all in all places and in all things. Call went to strike the man, but Diarl intervened and told Call to be at ease, and that if Krupp is to be useful, then it is up to him to do so and impress them. Krupp tells him that he will be useful. Crone hopped down towards Krupp and told him that he should have been a great raven. Krupp responded and said that Crone should have been a dog. Crone and, and Krupp banter between each other a bit more before Brood told them to shut the fuck up. He told them all to follow him and whirled towards Tistiandi camp. The Mivey looked at Whiskey Jack and he started laughing. Dujek started as well. Silver Fox squeezed her mother's hand and said that Krupp had already revealed his value. The Mybe told her child that she believes that he had as well. And they best get going to catch up to the warlord. Ooh! <laughs> well, what you got here for us? Well, my first section we've already talked about. Um, so I just had talked about um, Night Chill and Tattersail. She was wondering who was draining her life. Which, you know, being put in that perspective is, I mean, I, I feel like that's a tough thought, but I feel like we've already talked about Nightchill and Tattersail fighting for control. So I, I guess I don't know that them fighting for control necessarily equates into the draining of the Mybe's life. Well, do you think that because they're fighting harder, her life is being drained more? Do you think the effort from the two souls to 
established dominance isn't requiring a nurturing of sorts i don't know i i mean i i mean she's obviously like growing rapidly but i don't know that the struggle between nightshill and tattersail is accelerating that yeah i i don't know it's such a weird deal it is it's kind of hard to say i mean i feel like it's causing her to kind of start establishing some suicidal intentions right suicidal maybe yeah i mean she's just like she looks forward to the release of the hooded one's embrace so this is just a kind of a thought i'm having now didn't think of this reading it or anything if the maybe did kill herself is that gonna fuck over silver fox like will she not be able to grow anymore i would imagine that's what i'm thinking or or silver fox would cease to exist because she doesn't have anything to sustain her anymore yeah she might just die up yeah i don't think she'd just like you know wink out of existence you know just like that but right i imagine yeah that wouldn't be good so yeah but i agree i don't think the maybe uh will survive much longer i don't think no i would imagine that she'll probably I, if i had to guess i think she'd probably be dead i don't know maybe like a little over halfway through the book if i had to guess i think that i think that silver fox will eventually grow and we'll no longer need her, and that's when the Maybe will die. Damn, dude, what if uh, Silver Fox dies before the Maybe, and then she kills herself? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. pretty dark. Yeah, that is really dark, but oh well. I guess it was just a, a huge Raffo moment. There's so many of yeah. them so far. But it's yeah, like a moment with like knowledge that we possess, you know, instead of Raffo to unveil. I mean, yes, there still needs to be things that are unveiled, but I feel like for the most part, I have a pretty good picture. Unless I'm like yeah. wrong and everybody's laughing at me, but that's fine. <laughs> um, I don't think we're. I don't think people are laughing at us. Not unless we're like trying to make them laugh. Right? Yeah. Uh, Crop. It was so good to see him again. I knew it as soon as like it was said that the slippered foot was leaving the carriage. I'm like, this has to be Crop. I don't know why, but it just has to be. And I was right. So it was it was nice to see him again. And I thought it was funny how in just a very extravagant and elegant way, he explains that he's just a lowly little peon. He's just there to observe the meeting between the allies and the council. And they yeah. like <laughs> unveiled the good surprise on him, kind of going back to Big Daddy a little bit. We wasted a good surprise on you. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I kind of call bullshit, you know, like he's just here to observe the meeting. Uh, I didn't get, you know, a little bit later on, I definitely did not get that vibe that he's just there to observe. He's he's trying to influence shit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I also thought it was funny how he reacted when the Maibi said that she, that he was in her dreams. He was just like, well, all things were possible. So I don't know if that was one of those things where, like, is it possible because not very women are dreaming of Krupp? Or is it possible because the Maybe is aged at this point? Like, she's probably pretty old. Old yeah. look. I think it could go either way there, and it's still pretty funny. I liked, I liked his reaction there. <laughs> Third thing that I had here is when Krupp is kind of like observing the Maibi and like looking at Silver Fox and the Maibi is just like how he was able to kind of sense the way things were between them. And she was just like, 
how profound was her link with Silver Fox? And I'm like, pretty damn profound. <laughs> but I still want to know what Krupp can do. He's definitely been able to identify the link based on the way his facial expressions in the section were and kind of just his actions overall in this particular scene. Sure. But I, I, I mean, like, I know he's got some type of majory or sorcery, but like what exactly it is, you know, you still want to know what that is. Hey, I, I wonder if we'll get a reveal on that or not. I'm sure we will. Um, another pretty funny moment in this section is Krupp mocks Marilio for driving mules and asks him if he switched professions. And it sounds like Meese and Krupp stole the horses that were going to be used on the council's carriage. And kind of odd, but interesting. And was Krupp attempting to stall the council's carriage with that is kind of what I wonder. Oh, so he gets there first, maybe. Right. Or not at all. Like, true. Yeah. From getting there at all. And then the other part, kind of going back to what you mentioned just a little bit ago, Kat Krupp explains that he was there on half of Baruch and that because they were so close as like friends that words didn't have to be said. Uh, I don't think that Krupp is really here on behalf of Baruch. And I'm probably, I might be wrong in that, but I definitely think he's here on his own motivations. A hundred percent agree. I, th- I mean, I think Krupp is, I guess, you know, he's got his own motivations, like you said. And I think that's exactly what it, I mean, and they, we talked about that a little bit more here later. So I, yeah. yeah. But then I my question exactly is, is, like, where's Baruch? Why isn't Baruch there? Uh, I don't know. He's just off fucking off in the city, I guess. <laughs> Maybe you'd feel like someone like Baruch would be aware of this meeting. So, yeah, I don't know. Just a weird thought in defiance of, of Krupp and his motivations. Um, the next thing that I had is when Call basically asks Krupp what outrageous lies he had said after Brood was like, hey, yeah, no, actually, we do need him here. Um, I really liked how Krupp rescinded almost with like a very delicate sarcasm about him being wedded to truth and that he had just celebrated their anniversary. I just thought that was funny. It was just funny stuff. He's just like, I cannot lie because the truth and I are wedded and we just, we just celebrated our anniversary. (laughs) He's got, yeah. I don't know. Krupp is Krupp. Yeah. It was definitely nice to have him back. Um, the other thing that I thought was really weird, and, and maybe it's just the timing as to when we went through Gardens of the Moon, but Call was about to strike the man, and I didn't get the sense from Gardens of the Moon with Krupp, and it almost seems like a different relationship. What happened that Marilio and Call have such disdain for it? You know, granted, Call was drunk for 90% of Gardens of the Moon, but Marilio seemed to have at least a different level of a relationship with Krupp. Did you get that sense too, or am I crazy? I feel like Krupp in Gardens of the Moon was a little bit more respected amongst like Marilio and Ralic and Call. I don't know if it's just maybe that they didn't know better. You know, they didn't really, they're kind of figuring Krupp out, I guess. I'm, I guess I'm not sure. But I, I mean, don't know that I have a, a good answer. Am I wrong? I mean, did you feel like in Gardens of the Moon there was a little bit of a more, I wouldn't say obedience, but just 
like here they like seem to actually like hate this dude's guts is kind of like the feeling i'm getting and i don't remember that from gardens of the moon no i don't think it was that way in gardens of the moon they seem more annoyed with him at gardens of the moon than they do here they seem to like have leveled up i don't know i mean well they were kind of learning as they went i guess in gardens i i don't know I mean, I agree. I think they had a different type of relationship with them in gardens, but I don't, I don't know what would have caused this hatred for him unless they're just sick of listening to him talk. Cause he's, you know, he's the way he talks and yeah, you know, third person and all that. Maybe they're just tired of hearing that. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it is a bit annoying. I will, I will admit. I don't really have a problem reading it. You know, I guess it doesn't bother me that much, but I, I think it's written with the intent for the characters to be, you know, annoyed by it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the next thing that I had was when Crone and Krupp are bantering, and Crone is like, "Oh, you should have been a great raven," and Krupp was like, "Well, you should have been a dog." And I thought that was a nice little tie-in back to Gardens of the Moon when. Crone pretended to be a dog when Baruch and Rake were talking. That was that was funny. I yeah. like that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think like I that. actually audibly laughed when I read that. Yeah, that was funny. So again, nice little tie-ins back to Gardens of the Moon, which is just it's great. It's cool. The last thing that I had when Silver Fox is saying to the Mybe that Krupp had already revealed his value. I'm assuming this means the revealing of the Elder God Cruel to all these people, right? That has to be his value, is that he knows who the Elder God is. I suppose that makes sense. And the Bonecaster. I guess, I mean, they don't seem super concerned about that right now. Right, because he's Talan. They already know about the Talan parts. Right. I wonder I wonder how they're going to react when they find out it's cruel. I mean, we don't really know what people feel about him. Crocus didn't seem to mind. Well, I mean, it's. I, you do, I wonder, you know, like, maybe that's a good point. You know, because he's kind of faded from everybody's radar or most people's radar. So, right. Well, and, you know, Brood even says in the section that, you know, depending on who it is, may, you know, uh, dictate how they treat or go about Silver Fox. Right. But anyway, they're just, those are the things that I was curious about. Um, I didn't have any anything else outside of those things. So it was nice to see Krupp call uh, DRO. All of those guys again. Yeah, sorry, I didn't have any better answers for you on some of this stuff. Um, but yeah, it was good to get back in touch with some of these characters. Yeah, it's seeing Call again, and then Estrasian. I kind of felt, you know, he seemed like he was kind of a punk a little bit in Gardens of the Moon. Not that we had a lot of them, but yeah. I wonder how big of a role he'll play here going forward. Yeah, fair. Well, we're not even halfway there yet, but what do you say? Should we move on? Yeah, we can move on. Um, I guess I don't know if you, I, I don't know if I'm going to have the endurance to get through all this tonight. <laughs> Ooh. So that's going to push up our deadline for November 4th. That's going to make reading this next chapter like real quick. Yeah. I mean, we've been going for two and a, two half. And a half hours here and we're on section seven. Yep. Um, I don't know. Do you want to see where we're at for time when we get to like section 10? Yeah, let's see where we're at. Okay. Because, yeah, I think, I mean, to go all the way through, the, this is going to be a long episode. This will be our longest one. Yeah, this will probably sure. be a good four hours after it's edited. 
Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it's longer than that. I think the second half of this is going to go faster, but I mean, there's still quite a bit here. Yeah, I mean, I can only think of one section that we'll probably talk about really heavily. But outside of that, I think the rest of it will go real quick. But even, I mean, I mean, even if we didn't finish this tonight, I still, I mean, I would feel okay reading on, you know, like if you read tomorrow at work or whatever. Um, obviously, you still got to summarize and everything, but. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll see. I just, you know, would worry about something that we'd read in the next chapter that would come up while we, on stuff we hadn't talked about or recorded yet. Sure. I got you. All right. Section seven here. Once everyone was within the tent, they had removed cloaks and weapons. Paran said it was good to see Councilman Cole again and that he had thought he wore the armor better than he wore the robes. Call said he was right about that, and he often thought about the night in the Gadrobi Hills. Shaking hands, Call said it was a simpler time then. They turned as Whiskey Jack offered a toast, saying that Brood didn't have servants, so he would pour the ale on his sorry excuse for a table. Perance said their table was the bed of a wagon. Whiskey Jack explained that's why it smelt like a stable, and Brood's table was stolen last night. Cole was surprised that someone would steal a table. Whiskey Jack said it wasn't someone, it was Perance's bridge burners. He'd better call him on it. Call asked what the hell they stole it for. Whiskey Jack said he had no idea, but Brood only seemed inconvenienced by it. Brood's voice boomed and said to get things started. They needed to talk supplies and materials. Krupp was the first to seat himself at the end of the table, no less. Though he was happy with his ale and snacks, Cole told him to shut up and asked why he was in the head chair. Krupp said he was sitting and representing their mutual friend. Cole interrupted him and said Baruch would skin him alive if he knew he was here representing him. Krupp stood up, chugged his beer, and said that was incorrect. Baruch was interested in smooth sailing and only wanted a successful venture. Brood asked Krupp if his master had any suggestion, to which Krupp said that, said that there were many that could only be understood as generalities, which was proof of Baruch's all-embracing endeavors. Krupp wanted to keep this meeting moving, so he didn't keep stuffing his face and drinking more. Estrasian to Arl cleared his throat, saying there were only minor difficulties in maintaining a supply route to the combined armies. There are a few manageable crossings on the Caitlin River, but the bridge destroyed by the Jaghut tyrant had made things difficult. Krupp asked if bridges were a means of crossing from one side of the river to the other, and wouldn't this assume the warband's movements? Dujek spoke up, saying the river was only a problem if they wanted to use the southern route, and they'd only do that if they sought to cross the river early. Brood said it was their intent to stay on the north of the river and march straight for Capistan. Their planned route would take them north of Salton, then they'd proceed southeast. Darl said they would struggle to supply overland and would not be able to via the river, and that they would have to deal with the private sector to fulfill their supplies. Krupp said this shouldn't be a problem since there were many houses in Daruzhistan that would be interested in these endeavors, which would alleviate the need to take loans out from the city and then turn around and spend that money on buying supplies from the city. It was all such a mess and filled with corruption that Krupp felt it was his duty to provide the alternate solution he came up with, Baruch. They'd need a manager that was well-organized and not a part of the council. Call interrupted him, saying he'd better not see himself in this role. Krupp said Baruch had someone else in mind. Call called him on his bullshit, saying Baruch didn't even know he was here. Krupp said it was only a minor breakdown in communication. 
Baruch's desire was plain to Krupp. Darl told Krupp to get on with it. He said he would be happy to and asked how Chalice was doing. Had she married the hero of the Fet yet? Krupp was sad to have missed the event. Darl said she was well, and the event had not taken place yet, and his patience was growing thin. Krupp said he could only dream of being thin, and that the agent in question was the Trigali Trade Guild. Rude said he had never heard of them before. Krupp said they were the new guys in town, up from the south. He thought Ellingarth. They had used them once to get funds to Dujek. They had made no bids on a contract to supply the army, nor sent a representative to any meetings. And the single use had been a subcontract, and given the lack of interest so far, do they even want the job? Krupp said they don't place bids because they would be severely underbid every time. So, in other words, they ain't cheap. Practically a king's ransom. But whatever is asked of them will be done. Call figured it out and said that Krupp must have invested in them. So much for impartial advice. And that he must be acting on behalf of the trade guild. Krupp said the conflict of interest was only a matter of appearance and that it was a happy coincidence. He would eat more ruby cakes while they discussed the pros and cons. You think Krupp is going to pass out after this? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's why he wanted the meeting to get a go move on so he didn't uh, eat that much for that to happen. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I guess. I don't know if I really had a ton for this section. It was pretty straightforward. Outside of the fact that it was nice to kind of get an understanding how they were going to supply the march. And we also get a kind of a reference back to the first chapter with Gruntle, right? Like they're talking about that bridge that they're sitting at. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's really fucking things up. To me, it just seems kind of odd that, I mean, you got all these people sitting around. Why don't you just have them rebuild the bridge? Like, I don't know. You got a bunch of labor. Is it that hard? I, maybe it is. I don't know. I've never built a bridge, but. I mean, there's there's a sense. I mean, Darugistan is funding, you know, the resupply of Dujik's army, right? Like we found that out earlier in the book. And so, I mean, I guess I would imagine that it's just like, you know, during World War II, all of the metal used, you know, would go to making weapons. So I think that it's just a, a thing of resources, right? Probably can't pay to rebuild a bridge because they're funding a war. It's a good point. Good point. Um, I also thought it was cool how they kind of talk about, you know, well, you could go through the south and, you know, cross the, the Caitlin River or Catlin River. That would slow them down, but that would make for supplying the army a lot easier because they could use the river. So if you look on the map, you can actually kind of see what Brood is talking about. And they're going to leave on the northeast side and like go above the Catlin River and then down towards Capistan. So so like from Pale, they're all pretty much surrounding Pale. Yep. Yep. So instead of going straight south where they would cross the Catlin River, all oh right, yeah, they mentioned South Toan. So they would basically ride east and then angle downwards towards South Toan and then hit up Jerugistan there. Because the river Catlin goes or ends in Saltoan, the city of Saltoan. And it looks like it might continue on to Capistan. I don't know. It's hard to tell, but I think that's supposed to be a road. I could be wrong. I was, 
in my in my mind i uh i was thinking about this and i i thought that i was thinking that the order of the cities was reversed for some reason oh you know because my thought would be well if they go to the south of the river then that kind of dictates their move you know the the other side's going to know what their plan is whereas if they stayed to the north of it they could cross later you know maybe to go a different route keep them guessing a little bit where they're going to go first you know which city and that sort of thing but that's not going to be the case like i said i thought capistan was south of all those other cities but it's north of them yeah um, so it kind of shoots my plan to shit oh uh, it's fine but i mean it, it explains you know essentially crop and i mean we're not new to the tri trade guild you know this this these guys made an appearance in the last book. And I think yeah. that, again, we'll kind of get to a scene in Memories of Ice where Dujek hands them the necklace to give to Coltane. So I hope we get to see that and we get maybe more around that, um, uh, hopefully later on in the book. Mm, that'd be something. Uh, yeah. Kind of like discussing their reasons why they're giving it to him or like what their plan is with it. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I really had anything else here on this section either. Well, wasn't there a part in here where Krupp kind of makes a little bit of fun of the the councils in Jerugistan, where he's like, oh, all of them are tied up in like, uh, I guess, kind of probing at other motivations that politicians have to benefit their own gain. And so therefore they couldn't do it. I guess I don't remember. I thought so. I could be wrong. I just think that that was interesting. But also, like, do you think that Krupp has ulterior motives here? Do you think that he is representing the Tri Trade Guild? Tri Gailey Trade Guild? Absolutely. So you think that what Call is calling him out for, or I mean, DRO is calling him out for, is correct? Yes. Okay. What does he stand to gain? I don't know. Fair enough. But yeah, I mean, again, I don't think that the section had a ton of information. We get. I mean, it did have information, but I, I, it was mainly just focused around how they were going to supply the army on the march. And for us as the reader, for me, myself, I feel like that question got answered, right? Yes. So, yeah, I didn't really have a lot in this particular section to talk about because it made sense, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think it's funny that Krupp is eating at the beginning and at the end of this section well he's always eating <laughs> right it's just i guess it's just fun to have him back you know it's just uh you know these are the characters i was looking forward to getting back into when starting this book yeah i guess i did uh it was funny when Arl says, oh, you know, my patience is growing thin when he's Krupp's talking about Chalice and, you know, oh, she married and Krupp says, oh, I can only dream of being thin. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's just he's got this pervasive sarcasm. That's just funny. Well, anyway, I'm good to move on if you're good to move on. Yeah. All right. Crone could smell sorcery in the air. She thought to herself that it doesn't belong but it wasn't Rivi, and it wasn't Tistiandi, or the Rivi Spirit's Awakening. She circled over the encampment, probing with all her senses. The evening had turned to dusk, and the night as the meeting went on and on and on. She grew bored of the conversations about supplying armies and caravan routes, even though Krupp was entertaining enough until she sensed the stirrings of magic somewhere in the camp. Inside her mind, she pinpointed the point of interest— 
it was in a tent directly below. The place where the rivi dressed the dead Tistiandi. Crooking her wings, she dropped in a tight spiral. She landed a few paces from the entrance. In a moment, she was within the tent and recognized the table with a silent chuckle. She made her way under the table and saw that four figures leaned on the table above her. The muted clatter of wooden cards echoed through to Crone, or she heard a woman say that there it was again, and asked Spin if he shuffled the cards. Spindle told Picker that of course he did. It didn't matter how different the playing field was. Obelisk was always, has always been dominating, and it was active, plain as day for the first time in decades. Another voice interjected and said that Spindle wasn't doing it the way Fiddler did. Spindle then explained that the new card has a fixed influence. It's the glue holding everything together, and once you see that it once you see that, it all makes sense. The last voice asked if it was the glue, then if it was the glue, then it's linked to the new ascendant. Spindle admitted that he didn't know, as it seemed like it, it hadn't woken up yet and that he said it was a fixed influence, not an aspect of that influence. When it does awaken, though, he's sure things will heat up. Picker then asked what exactly they were looking for here. Spindle said that it was the same as before, soldier of high house death, right hand to the obelisk. Meiji of shadow was there as well. The first time for that card, too. Spindle went on to say that there is a grand deception at work. The captain of High House Light holds out, holds out hope, but is shaded by Hood's Herald, but not directly, as there's some distance there. The assassin of High House Shadow has acquired a new face. Spindle was getting hints of it, and it seemed bloody familiar. Hedge grunted and asked if they should have Quick Ben take a look at all this. Spindle said, that was it. The assassin's face was Kalam's. Hedge growled and said that he'd suspected as much, with Fid and Kalam paddling off the way they did. Hedge asked if they knew what this meant. Picker said that they could only guess, but the other thing was clear. Wasn't it, Spin? Spindle said yes, and that seven cities was about to rise. The whirlwind. Hedge said he has some questions for Quick Ben. Spindle added that he should ask him about the new card, too. Crone inside her head hung on the fact of there being a new card to the deck of dragons. New cards were trouble, especially ones with power. The House of Shadow was proof enough of that. She then looked up and saw the image staring back at her, the paint glittering as if alive. Man, this feels like a marathon, dude. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it does. Uh, so first, first thing here, Krupp. Uh, Crone has uh, a thought about how entertaining he was, and she thinks that Krupp is an obese rat trying to cross a rope bridge. And just <laughs> the image of that was just really funny. I could just imagine, uh, like a fat rat with like a little jacket, button up jacket that like doesn't button up all the way. Yeah, it was it was just a funny image. Definitely. <laughs> um, and then when they're kind of talking about. Spindle saying that he didn't know, uh, and it seemed like it hadn't woken up yet. And he said that it was like a fixed influence and not an aspect of that influence. And when it does waken, though, things will for sure heat up. 
this is what I'm referring. I think this is referring to Paran running away from whatever it is that he's running away from, which I think we'll find out later. Thus causing him to get more sick or whatever is ailing him, if that makes sense. So I think that's kind of the connection here. Okay. I don't have anything to go against that. Sure. Um, I noted High House Death here, uh, and this has not been revealed yet, and it's not Paran, because Paran, if I had to guess, would be associated with High House Dark, or potentially a new unaligned card. So I don't know who the soldier of High House Death is. I would imagine, I mean, from what I understand about the back of the book, it's it's fairly low. It's like mid as far as where he is on the order of players uh, in this particular deck or the suit, so to speak. I don't know who it would be either. Yeah. And I guess, you know what, I guess then what is the obelisk also like? I mean, I know what an obelisk is, but like in this meaning, like, well, do you remember if we, if we know who that was, maybe that would give us a clue. Well, I think it, I mean, I don't think we necessarily need to know who it is. My guess is that being that it's the right hand to Obelisk, and if you recall from Dead House Gates, when Kalam meets that uh, reader of the Deck of Dragons in that one town with the Red Blades following, uh, and then in the like kill tavern or whatever, yeah, yeah. it says that Obelisk can never be true in Seven Cities, right? So Obelisk is Seven Cities. When it's not seven cities, if that makes any damn sense. So the card, the card cannot be true in seven cities because obelisk equals seven cities. So the fact that they're on Genabacus, obelisk equals seven cities. Okay. Hmm. Oh, how else to explain this? Uh, I, makes- I get, I get what you're saying. But it still makes me wonder who. Okay, so who's the soldier of the high high house of death? Well, I think it's just. It's representing the whirlwind and all of the death that takes place in Deadhouse Gates, right? Okay. Chain of Dogs, sure. Low, and Corbolo Dom, all of those guys are maybe soldiers to High House Death, right? They're killing a bunch of people. So whether they're associated with the deck or not, I mean, do you need to be to be a soldier of death? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. The next thing that I have is the Meiji of Shadow. And again, Meiji also doesn't have anything in the glossary, but it's like fairly low on the list, but still above the hounds. So knowing what I know about Seven Cities and just Deadhouse Gates, I wonder if this is supposed to represent Poost or even Apt. Um, Aptorian. I was wondering, I, I, what if it was uh, the Spider Lady? Uh, Mora or whatever. Oh, not Mora. That's I already forgot her name. I feel like it starts with an M. I thought I just I had to look up the word Maggie, Magi, however you want to pronounce it, because I thought it was more, I guess, pointing towards a female, but it it wasn't. It was like it's like a wise man, I guess. Is at least what I found on a quick Google search. So yeah, maybe Poosh makes sense. He's definitely a freaking weirdo. Yeah. I mean, according to just the quick Google search I did, uh, is a wise man in Christian tradition, the noble pilgrim. 
So I don't know how noble Poost is. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. But I just, I can't help but wonder if, you know, Meiji of Shadow, we know that Shadow Throne had a big play in the deception at work. You know, Spindle went, you know, mentioned that there was grand deception at work. And I think this is referring to the convergence and the path of hands, because that was pretty much a giant deception because boost had made tremolor essentially look like the path of hands. I don't think I anything else to add <laughs> on top of that. <laughs> right, all right. All right. Um, Sometimes like I wouldn't pick out this stuff like you do. You do a lot better job about it than I do. Well, we're just, I'm just doing what we do best and talking about it. Um, <laughs> I try not to sound like a dumbass. But... Uh, it's fine. It's fine. It's cool. The other, the last thing that I had here in this section, which again, was just a lot of tie-ins when the assassin's face was Kalam's and then Hedge growled and said that he'd suspected as much with Fid and Kalam paddling off the way they did. And I don't know if, like, I'm missing something we're not supposed to be in on yet, but I don't understand how the assassin of High House Shadow, which is Cotillion, right, has acquired a new face. And is it because of what we know about Kalam and Manala's ending, babysitting so many children in Shadow Throne? Or is this too early for that? But then again, these cards... I imagine are somewhat of a foretelling as well as like events further out, maybe, right? Like these cards may represent the present, but also the future as well. Yeah, they could. Yeah, because I think at this point of Memories of Ice, I'd, if you were to like put the timeline up with Dead House Gates, I don't think we're at, at that point in Dead House Gates where they're going off to take care of all the kids. Because, because we just, a section or two ago, they just found out that the whirlwind's going to be rising up. So I don't think enough time has passed for all that to transpire yet. Right. I mean, I mean, this whole chapter, I feel like takes place in the span of a couple hours, really. Um, right? It's a couple days. Is it a couple days? I feel like there's a couple of mentions where night, night rolls around a few times. Okay. Well, I mean, in any case, Deadhouse Gates takes, over. you know, that's like, I mean, isn't that close to a year? It's at least nine months, right? Because I thought they said, like, to march from wherever the hell they started going to... Where the hell was Pormqual at? Aaron. Aaron. Like, that was, like, going to take them months and months and months to do. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I just... I, I'm not I'm not understanding how Quotillion equals Kalam. And I know that Kalam and Manala got wrapped up in some Shadow Throne bullshittery. So does that, is that the reason why? I guess I don't know. Like, has Cotillion taken on Kalam's face while he's basically subdued in Shadow, Shadow Realm? That would be interesting. I don't know. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have a good answer for you. <laughs> That's cool. It's cool. 